And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when we discuss almost anything. And tonight, we're going to be talking, among a lot of other things, about the, quoting Dr. Gary Nolan, the 100% probability that aliens, ETs, are living among us. Now, I don't know any scientists who would ever, ever say 100%. So as we go through this evening and then this morning, uh, we're going to have a couple of takes on this um, as to where we are, what it means, why Nolan is so certain, and then uh, uh, one of my guests is going to bring up some other correspondents and reporters and producers who have looked at the field and looked at the evidence and have come to uh, very similar conclusions, but that's going to be in a little while. Before we get going, I want to you know, hit some news items that are of relevance to tonight, starting with Happy Memorial Day. We've got about uh, two hours left here in the Land of Enchantment. Uh, if you want to go to the other side of midnight, if you're brand new to the um, uh, facts of how we work the show here, you click on tonight's banner, which says with that very provocative image of Clark Kent, um, 2023 disclosure revelations. Uh, click on that. That will take you to the guest page. And then under there, you'll see a couple of lines. One says to listen to the show. Under that, it says guest page, and under that, it says fast to items. Click on my name. That will take you to the radio with pictures section of the other side of midnight and my items. And obviously, number one is what I'm referring to. This is a very good backgrounder by USA Today on the history and evolution of Memorial Day. Memorial Day used to be Decoration Day which was kind of connected to the military and bunting flags and all that. Then in 71, the Congress uh, turned it into Memorial Day, and we have been celebrating all the way back to the beginning, of course, of the Republic, all the men and women who have died in service to the concept of freedom. And uh, if I may quote a line from one of our sub-themes tonight, truth, justice, and the American way, which, by the way, in that whole Superman opening monologue, it did come from an observation of the military that was inserted. And that's a little um, kind of tidbit that uh, we'll talk about later this morning. So happy Memorial Day to everyone. Uh, it's much more than a holiday, which technically is Monday. It is a celebration and and in service to the literally millions of men and women who have died to preserve this extraordinary experiment, which has never had more perils except maybe when the concept of Decoration Day or Memorial Day was born way back in the Civil War. Uh, since then, this republic is facing extraordinary challenges, and as many uh, news anchors are saying these days, you know, welcome to these extraordinary times. And they are indeed extraordinary, not the least of which is for 
what we're going to talk about in the next couple, three hours tonight, which is this developing process, this developing concept of disclosure, which, of course, could cover a multitude of sins. But as we're using it tonight, and most people are using it these days, disclosure of all the things that government knows about the extraterrestrial interaction with the human species that for the last 70 plus years, they just haven't gotten around to telling us about. Well, tonight, of course, we're going to be dealing with where we are in this moving target in a very real sense uh, live uh, tonight. But first of all, in my Radio with Pictures section, item number two, you know, when you're looking at the status of democracies and republics and, and um, you know, representative government, one of the most um, thorny, if I can use that term, has been Turkey. Well, Turkey held a couple of weeks ago an election and Erdogan came in neck and neck. He did not get 50%, which, of course, under Turkish law, they have to have in order for there to be a duly elected president. So they went into a runoff. Now, this, of course, I believe is Turkey's first presidential runoff. And with little surprise, um, Erdogan, the current president of uh, Turkey, wins in the runoff. Whether he's going to govern the same as he has governed over the last 30-some years, was it, 20, 28, almost 30 years, uh, we shall see. But he did win the Turkish runoff election, and so we can chalk that one off the board and look back to the domestic issues of the United States. As you know, or you may not know, but maybe you've heard somewhat distantly about, um, tonight appears to have been uh, a, a major turning point in the so-called debt ceiling crisis, which has been ongoing now ever since it was established decades ago as a kind of a fifth wheel. I mean, technically speaking, there should not be a debt ceiling. That was an act of Congress, but it's superseding the two other acts of Congress, which in fact go into shaping the annual fiscal year budget of the United States. And we've done many, we've done at least two or three shows on this. We may do a, uh, uh, an update next weekend, next Saturday, probably, given that the Treasury has now told us that they have enough money in case the Republicans in the House and the Senate cannot agree on the deal that the President and the Speaker of the House reached this afternoon to, uh, you know, proceed with a debt ceiling and then with the uh, 2025 budget. We will see. If there is news, it will come out in the next week. Uh, we have enough money in the Treasury, according to Janet Yellen, to last until about January 5th, which is no different than having a bank account and having creditors. And you look in your bank account and there's not enough liquidity, enough cash to pay everybody. Uh, but you could pay somebody. But then that gets us into a legal thicket because the Congress has specifically forbidden the executive branch for decades now from exercising what's called a um, uh, mine item veto, where the president and the cabinet get to decide which debts get paid and which laws of Congress 
i.e. bills are pursued, et cetera, et cetera. So if, if this deal does not go through, if the uh, Speaker of the House can't muster enough votes between Republicans and Democrats to put it over the top, we will be in real, real, real hurt. And nowhere have I seen what I wish I could have seen in the last couple of weeks, which is a careful recitation of the world of hurt we would be in, both domestically and internationally, if the United States for the first time in almost a quarter of a uh, millennium were to welch on its debts. That is, after we've spent the money, we turn around and refuse to authorize the payments of the duly congressionally mandated debts. Never has happened in our history, but at some point it could happen. So if the deal goes through, if McCarthy can get enough Republican votes and Democrats fill in what he can't get, then we will have foreshorn the problems for another two years. And the next debt ceiling crisis will fall after the next election, and hopefully after the next election, the whole idea of a debt ceiling, which we're one of only two countries on the whole planet. There's us and guess what? Finland, that's also done this cockamamie thing. In other words, authorizing money, appropriating money is not enough. You have to have a third door to go through to basically authorize paying then, which of course is nuts. Anyway, moving on. Item number four. Tonight, this is kind of getting into the wheelhouse. This is from uh, Hoodline, which is a new service, which has done a good job on kind of covering this. Um, Dr. Gary Nolan, as I said earlier, who is a professor at Stanford of immunology and and, uh, works is uh, attached to the Department of Medicine and Pathology, based on evidence he has seen, uh, is saying rather forthrightly that aliens are walking among us. Now, if that's true, given everybody's kind of predilection to think of aliens as little guys with big heads and big eyes, how could how could aliens be walking among us if in fact they are passing as humans? Well, it's very, very simple. They are part of, in the Hoagland model, the extended human family and the interactions and the going undercover and all of this. And Nolan says for a very long time um, is, is basically because they fit in perfectly because they are us just in the Hoagland model cousins kind of once removed or maybe a little more distant removed, but they can, I, I remember living in Berkeley when I would walk down the street to the stores or to the supermarket or wherever, and there was this interesting couple, I could have sworn that they were not exactly of this earth. If any two people, and they were they were together, they they were a man and woman, they were together. They wore um, basically twin clothing, even though they were of different sexes. And I could swear that if anybody fit the kind of superficial profile of visitors, you know, family kind of on a tourist jaunt, they did. But they lived and walked around in Berkeley for years. So obviously, if I'm right, they would have fit into Gary 
Nolan's profile. We will be discussing all of this tonight up to and including where we currently are in this very tumultuous and uh, contentious uh, discussion around disclosure, where we are, who's in, who's out, what's going on, uh, what we might expect next. Are there hearings now that we've got the debt ceiling hopefully behind us? But don't cross your chickens until they're hatched, mixing our metaphors madly. Um, we may get a chance to actually focus on more interesting and more important things, certainly to the long-range um, future of the United States as well as the planet. My first guest, therefore, is doc- a doctor. Well, I'll give you a doctor. Come on, Stephen. Stephen Bassett is a political activist, disclosure advocate, and the executive director of the Paradigm Research Group, founded back in 1996 to end the government-imposed embargo on the truth behind extraterrestrial-related phenomena. And I think that covers ruins and other planets. Right, Stephen? Stephen has spoken to audiences around the world about the implications of disclosure, which he terms the formal confirmation by heads of state of an extraterrestrial presence currently engaging the human species. Stephen has lectured around the world on the political implications of this phenomenon, including the conversion of the term UFO to UAP, and of course the ever-present ET, which does stand for extraterrestrials. And he's given over 1,200 radio and television interviews. I know that's a lot of work. PRG's advocacy work has been extensively covered by the national and the international press, including being featured on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, The Washington Post, and, of course, The New York Times. So without further ado, Stephen, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Hi, Richard. Good to be with you. (laughs) Can you be briefer? (laughs) How long have we known each other? 30 years? 40 years? We first met in 1995 at a conference in Los Angeles, which I think was held at the LAX Hilton, but it might have been another hotel. Hmm. I probably will. Fall of 95. Yeah. Wow. That's a long time. That's a very long time. Uh, my yeah. other guest who will be joining us later this morning is Robert Morningstar, who is a self-styled civilian intelligence analyst. He's certainly an investigative journalist and a psychotherapist currently living in Washington, in Washington, in New York City. He's a specialist in photo interpretation, geometric analysis, and computer imaging. And he's been on countless times. He's also an expert in Chinese, the language, the history, and martial arts, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, did I mention that he's a licensed private pilot, an instrument ground instructor, and has studied the paranormal and UFO field for over 50 years and published many, many research articles, almost countless articles on the internet exposing the government cover-up and deceptions applied to both that and the JFK assassination, which is one of his specialties of research. And he will be joining us later, unless Stephen says something egregious that Robert wants to uh, uh, you know, add something to, in which case he will break in. So back to Stephen. Stephen, now that the debt thing is 
maybe in the rearview mirror. Can we focus again on what's going on in Washington vis-a-vis the political process of getting finally, after decade and decade and decade, to the truth on the sticky subject of UFOs slash UAPs slash ETs? The process is moving forward in Washington, D.C., pretty much at a pace I'm comfortable with. It's been steady. It's been relentless. Uh, It's somewhat subject to congressional schedules. But, of course, the program set up at uh, DOD, uh, Arrow, All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, which I've come to like. I like that acronym, and I I like the name, and it's it's the appropriate name. It actually is the one that fits, Um, continues unabated. They just announced a couple of days ago that they are going to be hiring a deputy director for Dr. Sean Kilpatrick, Kirkpatrick rather, um, which again is in line with what they're supposed to do. So is Kirkpatrick the head of the uh, so-called anomaly office? Yeah, he's the head of Arrow, which is a cross-agency group, a working group, I like to say. They'll have a core group of uh, full-time people working out of an office in the DOD. It may not be large. It could be 20, 25. Yeah, I heard but about the 25. Number people, the number of people that will be uh, part of it uh, as, as a, a part-time way uh, throughout the government across many agencies and even the services will be substantial, meaning they have a job. But in addition to that, they also have uh, work that they're doing with respect to Arrow across the agency, which way it should be. And um, that's moving forward. Uh, And, of course, uh, NASA uh, has been uh, adjusting to all of this and doing the right things as well. And, in fact, I have heard nothing at NASA. And even from the folks I know, it's like a big black ball has closed around them and they're conducting their research in, in extreme secrecy for a NASA working group. Well, they set up. They, they set up for the first time ever a uh, an entity within Na- within NASA to quote address the phenomena uh, and so forth. Exactly how much they intend to do, I don't know. Uh, I, I, all of this is pretty much for show, as I've said many times. It's it's not that NASA didn't know doesn't know there's an ET presence. People in NASA, there are people within NASA that have always known that. But they need to do – this is all part of the disclosure uh, process that's underway leading to uh, a confirmation event, and NASA's playing its role. It's doing all the right things because this is very important. And, and as of in three days, they're holding a, uh, a four-hour public meeting. It starts at 10.30 a.m. Eastern time, goes to 2.30. They will report on what they have been learning from studying various reports and what have you is in, in their – uh, arena, and then they're going to hold a two-hour media teleconference afterwards and take a lot of questions. Hmm. Uh, that's that some people. I'm sure there are people out there that think, well, that happens all the time, doesn't it? I mean, this is NASA, and they, they should be. They, they well, be they hold these things on many different subjects, but I guarantee you, this is the first one NASA's ever held on UFOs. Sure, absolutely. And, and Bill Nelson has made all the right statements. NASA is positioning itself well, public relations-wise to deal with what is coming. And of course, what is coming is we're gonna have uh, the president confirming the ET presence. 
I hope, this summer, and certainly possible. And uh, well, wait, 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 wait. But in other shows, you said that the sequence is hearings, Senate or House. Yeah. And yeah. then the White House. Well, the summer lasts till September, as far as I'm concerned, and we could have hearings in any day. They, they've done more than enough to prepare for hearings. They could hold it at any time. It's just a matter of of uh, what's going on. I think the debt ceiling, certainly, they were not going to initiate a hearing no, of course not. Uh, on this subject in a, in a major committee like the Senate Intel while the debt ceiling was being negotiated. Now, that's done. So the, the door is opening wider and wider. And just to give you a sense of this, uh, another, another take on it. If the president were to confirm the extraterrestrial presence, say, on July 8th, which is disclosure, World Disclosure Day, which I, really? I set up about. Okay. I uh, it hasn't really caught on, but I, I set it up about 15 years ago. Um, there will be immediate hearings called within days, certainly a week, uh, and a whole lot of people are going to be coming up on the Hill. Yeah, both in the, the House Congress and the Senate. Because, of course, even the Senate is controlled by the Democrats and the House by the Republicans – even if it wasn't, but it is. So you're going to have both parties, you know, doing due diligence in committees, going through the motions of finding out what's been going on, which, of course, they already know behind the scenes. Yeah, sure. But all the committees are about equal Democrats and Republicans. And uh, but in the House, the uh, Democrat, the Republicans are chairing the committees. But. How many hearings and where what is less important that there's going to be hearings? And in the most important well, wait, 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 you, you, you say it's less important. I would think the American people, when they hear these witnesses, like the hearings that you set up, you know, the, the, uh, the simulation hearings at the National Press Club, you know, like a decade ago, that was very impressive because it got unvarnished testimony to audiences that had never read or heard any of this stuff. Particularly the press. It helped. If if it the helped. hearings are going to be part of the process, they should be substantive hearings, and they should put real witnesses who have amazing stories, who are very credible, in front of the American people, and that's how this has to be sold. Like with anything else, the politics of disclosure have to be politicized, right? Properly. The, the whole process is political. Uh, that's fine. The hearings are going to be extremely substantive. They're going to be military witnesses. Many have already been interviewed. And the point I'm trying to make is that very shortly after the president is able to finally confirm this is non-human technology, non-human presence, there's going to be a lot of hearings and a lot of people be heading up the hill to go under oath to discuss the matter. One of those is going to be Bill Nelson. And when former Senator Nelson, former astronaut Nelson, sits down takes the oath, very soon after he sits down, one of the members of the committee is going to ask him this question. Uh, Administrator, Director Nelson, when did you personally know that this phenomenon was real and non-human? <laughs> and the answer is going to be 1968, 70. Uh, next question. Has, have people in NASA known that this is a non-human technology the answer is yes. Why didn't NASA address it publicly? It could not. It was not in its mandate, and it was not. It was against the law. It's a national security matter. We were not allowed to go there. Uh, now, these are tough questions, and 
what NASA's doing is trying to do all the right things so when those questions finally get asked, people are going to be understanding. And I assure you, Bill Nelson being the administrator of NASA is not an accident. He is about the perfect person you want in that chair to be answering those questions. Let me, let me stop you and there. And they will come. Because two right. years ago when Biden appointed Nelson, I said exactly the same thing. And I've been watching Senator William Nelson with a, with a microscope, and I have not seen him make a misstep on several complicated issues. He, is the, he really is. I totally agree. The perfect person to be in that chair when NASA is suddenly under this extraordinary – because most people think of NASA as the government's agency to look for life beyond the Earth. That's their raison d'etre. So no, for him, that's the SETI program. No, that's uh, NASA. NASA's job is to go into space, right? Go back and it read really the charter. It really talks about search for extraterrestrial intelligence. It does not talk about that. Yes, it does. Uh, it's, a, it's about going into space, doing the technology, getting to Mars, getting to the moon, and other things. SETI is the one that's searching for signals in the sky. You're forgetting NASA Brookings. NASA never said we got to go to Mars you're because there may be light, and we may there may be a civilization there. We're going to find it. You're forgetting <clears throat> Brookings, which was authored under NASA back in 1959, and the recommendations yeah. of a NASA panel, the Brookings, you know, panel, was that extraterrestrial life, intelligent life, would be discovered. Not could be, not might be, but would be discovered. In within 20 years of that 1959 date. So in the public mind, if they think about this at the level of any depth, they're thinking NASA finding aliens, that's part of their charter. They can think that, but it's not. But pop uh, perception, as we've just seen in this whole debt ceiling idiocy, is 99.99% of reality. So Bill Nelson <clears throat> is going to get asked those questions and he damn well better have a good answer. And the national security part, referring back to the charter, is perfect because legally, technically, under the law, NASA could say nothing unless the DOD and the security apparatus um, concurred. Correct. So, so the, the only good answer that uh, former Senator Nelson can give is the truth. And he's going to. You're going to see a whole lot of truth telling. And these are going to be tough truths and they're going to be tough question answers. But the whole process we're going through is to mitigate that. Because if they had to ask those questions without all of what has preceded the legislation, the setting up of entities, then the restructuring of those entities, the expansion of those entities, responding to, to queries from Congress. Uh, releasing documents, which they have been doing. They've been preparing for this for a long time. A lot of people don't know, most, most Americans don't know, that there is a huge trove of documents related to UAP on the FBI website and the CIA website. They were released years ago. Uh, not a big deal. The researchers kind of know it. They may go browsing, but they don't, they don't tout it, but they did it. And so the CIA director will be able to point out when asked that question, Director of CIA, did the CIA know that this phenomenon was non-human uh, uh, before last year? Uh, yes. Uh, how far back? 1940s, 
after it was formed. Okay. And so, yeah, and you didn't, you obviously couldn't tell us, of course not, national security, but we have done what we could, and we have released a lot of documents related to this. You can find them on our website. Do you see where I'm getting here? Yeah. This is about public relations. It's not about discovering anything. No, of course. And that's okay. all right. We are I'm at perfectly the, fine with it. We are at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Stephen Bassett for the first uh, Oh, hour, hour and a half, however long he wants to stay with us, and we've got a lot to cover in terms of the real world. And then I'm going to kind of move the conversation into the what if, because part of the questions that uh, Bill Nelson may get asked, given Dr. Nolan's very out there public stance, may be in fact, uh, Mr. Administrator, do you believe as Dr. Nolan does that aliens are living among us now? I wonder what his answer to that one will be. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night edition of The Other Side of Midnight for May 28th, 2023, coming up on the summer solstice in less than a month. By the way, probably next weekend when we do another um, uh, moon show, maybe, because everything is in flux right now, I've been running a kind of a quiet background, hyperdimensional torsion field physics experiment, and it's... Within a month, within 30 days, uh, 
of the earth aligning with the summer solstice, it's begun acting very, very, very weird. I mean, really weird. It's kind of like a poor man's Accutron, and there's no electricity involved. It's just watching inertia and angular momentum and that kind of stuff. So what I might do next weekend is I might actually call for some volunteers to set up equivalent experiments around the country, even around the world, and see if we all get the same results at the same time. Uh, Stay tuned for more on that. Anyway, back to my guest of the morning, Mr. Bassett. Yes, sir. Okay, so we were at where we're talking about Nelson and the fact that he's going to be answering a lot of very interesting questions. How much do you think he can actually tell the truth without looking like like NASA's been basically taking the uh, American taxpayer to the cleaners for decades? And the astronauts. Again, I wouldn't say that NASA is taking the American taxpayers to the cleaners. NASA was doing its job under the Space Act as a civilian space agency. Now, if its mandate had been to search out and find extraterrestrial life like Star Trek, then it would have uh, been not doing its mandate. But it actually did its job. But that job was limited by the 19, by the 1958 Space Act, and NASA had to remain completely of this issue, which is one of the reasons the SETI was created in the first place. SETI was created, or the SETI concept emerged at exactly the same time as the Space Act. And so SETI was to be the buffer. Meaning well, wait, wait, wait. SETI we was can't... initially set up under NASA, and then because of Proxmire, who basically gutted the budget, they had to go private, and they found private billionaires, Paul Allen and a few others, and they've, they've been a parallel effort. But initially, SETI itself was technically a NASA program to look it for was funded aliens. Through NASA funds. Yeah, well, that's but how NASA it worked. Really its own entity no 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 no. never 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 it was part of the nasa bureaucracy remember i used to work at nasa and then it got moved out because of proxmire but it started out as a nasa program to look for radio signals from aliens at least briefly maybe a a year or so i forget the actual time frame however long it whatever its early incarnation uh within nasa that doesn't change the point that I'm making, that it was set up to be the focus for that component of people's interest in space. And that component had no chance of succeeding. They weren't going to find signals, almost zero chance. And they already knew there were ETs here. But, okay, so SETI eventually, not surprisingly, moves out of NASA because as years go by, it becomes increasingly awkward. As people keep seeing things all around the world and they're wondering, well, why is it NASA maybe doing more than SETI? SETI becomes its own thing and it comes and goes and whatever. It keeps searching for signals, which apparently is still never gotten. So it's that buffer. Anyway, NASA was doing its job. All right. Um, and because uh, you, you took me, I had a train of thought going there and kind of lost it for a second. Um, NASA is uh, doing its job. Yeah. Again, Right. See, see, politics is so disorganized that most people in the country think of NASA as the ET agency, that they're the tip of the spear. They're out there. If there's anybody out there, well, they will find them first. 
Yeah, and they're wrong. They just flat out. One of the but reasons politics they're wrong is, is the government on, doesn't correct them. Politics the is based on wrong things. Stephen, politics is based on wrong assumptions all the time. I'm just again, wondering again. how the people are going to respond, and maybe you can't answer this. Well, if I'm if I'm if I was asked that question, you know, if I was asked that question, if I was in a hearing, I'd say it wasn't. NASA was not tasked to do that and didn't do it. All right. It could have been tasked to do that if if if, if Truman had held a uh, held some hearings in 1948 uh, after a, after not telling Roger Ramey to reverse the story that had been issued by by the base. Uh, then when NASA finally got set up, one of its chief jobs would have been connected to the ET presence. Who knows? The, the 20th century could have gone a lot of different ways. What we do know is that every entity of the government, CIA, NASA, Air Force, Navy, Army, National Science Foundation, every single element of our government with any direct or even indirect connection to the matter of an ET presence was under embargo and could not go there, period. And they successfully kept all of that relatively in place for now 76 years. And now it's going to come apart. And when it does, there are going to be a lot of questions about every single entity of government. What did you know? When did you know? And why didn't you do something about it? Why didn't you say something? Uh, a lot of the people that that were at the beginning of this, of course, all gone now. Some of the new ones can plead, look, I, I've just been on board for a few years, whatever. The point is, is that people are going to ask these questions. And this process is underway. It's going to make it easier to answer those questions. Right? And, 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 and hopefully we can move past what will be an awkward moment. But most of that awkwardness is going to be amongst the baby boom and Gen, 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 uh, what's it, Gen Ys, whatever the hell they were. My age and the next group, the millennials will not care one iota. The millennials will only be interested in what have you got, what's going on, tell us this is incredible, and they could care one iota about what the government did between 1947 and 2017. And so that's the, that's the future of the country. They're going to be perfectly happy. I'm going to be happy too, even though I do know the history of this, and there's a lot of things about it that irritate me. But that's the nature. History moves forward, not backwards. And so we have to prepare for disclosure as, a, as the citizens and how we're going to deal with it and react to it, what we're going to do afterwards. And all of these entities have to prepare as well. The Congress, the Department of Defense, NASA, the, uh, the, and the Air Force, which really needs to start getting, getting into play here pretty soon. It's dragging its feet, God bless it, um, uh, and so forth. They've got to be involved in this, and the most important probably involvement is the Congress. The Congress, the elected representatives, and they can't be seen as being surprised by all this or, oh, I had no idea. So they've been brought on board. They've been briefed. They're being brought up to speed, and not surprisingly, and they have the perfect right. They're starting to say things that are, how would you say, aggressive. Such and a the leading such member a. of Congress that's doing that is Tim Burchett. So okay. Tim Burchett is going on in front of cameras and, and microphones every couple of weeks and saying there's extraterrestrials here. Is and this is this a congressman in Congress. from Indiana, I think? Tennessee. Tennessee. Still in Congress. And he's getting great press. And he now he's now he's now he's being brought in on the news programs to talk about a lot of different things. In other words, it's the best thing that ever happened at Tim Burchett. <laughs> Expect a few more members of Congress to do this. Uh, exactly 
how many I don't know. Most of them, I think, understand the process that's going away, and they're, step, they're just going to stay back, learn, be briefed, whatever they want to tell us. A lot of them are in committees or just not particularly relevant. Well, wait, wait, wait. So wait. Is, could, could, could Burchette be the kind of stalking horse, the designated hitter for the folks behind the scenes that have to have somebody out front raising the issues, but not them? In other words, they've all said, hey, Tim, you, you're into this stuff. You be the guy. I, I don't think that would, that would have been a very unwise thing to do. Uh, they didn't need to do that. Somebody was going to play that role. He's not the only one. Um, again, let, let, let me just uh, remind people. In 2008, in a press conference after my ex-conference in Washington, D.C., uh, we always held a press conference at the National Press Club afterwards. And in that one, uh, Edgar Mitchell, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, astronaut, Apollo astronaut, stood in front of the CNN cameras and others and basically said there's extraterrestrials here. All right. And then, let's see, um, in 2016, uh, in 60 Minutes, Robert Bigelow, a very wealthy man, some say he had a billion dollars at one time, NASA contractor, um, he went on 60 Minutes and said there's extraterrestrials here. And then, uh, a while back, Tim Burchett started doing that, saying there's extraterrestrials here. And then Gary Nolan did it about a week and a half ago. Now, that's when things uh, I think are inter- – that, that, there's an aspect of that that's, that must be discussed. And, and I think a lot of your listeners don't know this. That's why or you're not, here. <laughs> but uh, in 2017, the To The Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences announces itself, goes public, sets up a website, and gives, an, it gives a, uh, a video a briefing or launching rather and there were 10 people involved i say 10 the, the 10 government and military intelligence complex type people and of course there was a there was a head of that group uh sort of the, the leader uh tom DeLong. but the 10 people that are the resumes in that group uh three of them went on and i think that was intentional to spearhead the process that we're, we're underway right now. The other seven kind of stayed back. It's not that they were completely silent, but overall, they kind of stayed back. You heard from them from time to time. Uh, CIA, Jim Semivan, Steve Justice of Lockheed, uh, Hal Putoff, these individuals stayed in the background. But three people moved forward, and those three people have been – was the intention all along that somebody, and in this case, these three people, were going to be the ones that were going to spearhead this process to get it where it was going, and that was disclosure. That's why they came out in the first place. Three of them. Elizondo, Louis Elizondo, is the one that was dealing mostly military intelligence. Christopher Mellon was handling the politics, and Gary Nolan, science. Elizondo was much more prominent initially. Mellon then became much more active. And then recently, Nolan has gotten much more active. And so when Nolan goes on uh, that talk show in New York and says there's extraterrestrials here, and by the way, he didn't say they're walking amongst us. He said they're here and they've been here, which means that for a long time and they were engaging us a long time ago. Does that mean they've been living here all along? No. Right. People visit Hawaii all the time. It doesn't mean they're necessarily living there, but they visit. They come, they go. They may have bases. Not quite the same thing as living amongst us. Uh, now, he's not trying to make those distinctions. He, he had one thing to do on that show, was say, there's extraterrestrials here. The rest of it was 
somewhat not re- necessarily relevant. Uh, he made a number of statements which are interesting, uh, which are somewhat a little off, uh, because I think in a sense, he, again, he's, he has a fundamental thing to do, get that point out, and then the rest is kind of incidental. For instance, when he says that the reason that uh, they're able to do what they do is that they're not living, uh, Gary doesn't know that, and I'm almost certain that they are. Uh, because if they weren't living, they wouldn't have stuck, stunk up the hospital in Roswell in 1947 as badly as they did. Machines don't stink like that. But that's okay. All that so wait, wait, but back up, back up. The reason that Nolan was on a, a radio show or TV show in New York is there was a conference involving the Pentagon disclosure and whatever else. And then after that, he made these statements at this conference, and then he was picked up by media, and they wanted him to talk on their shows. He, he made the statements that got the big news was at a, a, a at the uh, Salt Eye Connections. Yeah, that's event. that's the one. That's the conference. Okay. okay, okay, that's where he spoke. All right. Yeah, and th- it was not the only topic that they were dealing with, but he was asked about this, obviously. Now, what is so going wait, wait, on? So wait, but back up because I've not followed him in detail because I got a million other things I'm trying to follow. That's why I, yeah. I lean on you guys. Did he say specifically that the aliens were not biological entities? They were not organic beings like he, us? He, 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 he had intimated that they're, uh, they, 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 uh, they are not living, that they're basically mechanical entities. And he's, he's wrong. Whether he's deliberately so, wrong, so they don't So he's saying really they're care. androids as opposed to naturally gestated you know, organic beings. They didn't follow up. Darn. And there might be, there might be quote manufactured bi- biological entities in some of these craft, possibly. But that statement, I just wouldn't put a lot of emphasis on it. It's not the important statement, and I don't think he's in a position to know that. But nevertheless, I thought part of his testimony. That's important. I thought what part. Of, I thought part of Nolan's testimony was based on his profession as a pathologist, and he'd actually analyze brains mris and x-rays and whatever and he'd seen systematic differences and that was the basis for his his uh theory his proposal uh no he has been analyzing the brains of witnesses and pilots that okay. have had exposure okay he's been involved or was trying to be involved in materials analysis He's definitely got inside connections. He's a very important player, and he's a Nobel nominee. He's got gravitas. That here is what people need to take away from these things, okay? Whether they're intended or not, though I think in some of the cases they're intended, and that is this. They're closing the back door on the government with respect to the disclosure process. The government is going forward, and every step it takes, it gets more coverage, more attention, more excitement on the part of the public. I've already logged in on my website in the print media archive, 5,000 articles related to this process since 2017, 5,000. And that's just higher-end media. That's not the fringe stuff. It's not website stuff, and it's not foreign foreign press. It is English-language media, 5,000 articles. All the major publications up and down the scale have been covering it extensively. They, they are going right into that, all right? And at some point, somebody may raise their hand in a meeting somewhere at the DOD and say, we can't take much more of this. We got to get out of here. Let's, hey, let's go, go out the back. They won't see us leave, and then it'll all die down. That back door is now locked. 
you not there is no back door. When people like Burchette and Nolan are saying this extraterrestrials here, that makes it harder. And they're not the only ones that are going to do this. You're going to see more of this. It's, it makes it impossible for this process to suddenly be reversed and for them to just go away. They are going to have to go forward. There is no escape out the back. That's part of the reason and importance of these statements. They're simple and straightforward. There's extraterrestrials here. Don't ask me more. That's for the congressional hearings. That's for the post-disclosure world. So Gary is playing his role. And when someone is a Nobel Prize... So you think Gary's position, and I don't know him, so I shouldn't call him by his first name, but you think Dr. Nolan's position has been inspired by some kind of cohesive strategic plan as opposed to Nolan thinking it's time for me to speak up on what I think I know. I think that there is a strategic plan and it's, and it's, and it was uh, the one that we're most interested in begins in October of 2017. It wasn't supposed to, to, to launch then I believe it was supposed to launch in 2016. Uh, after the election, but that uh, didn't that things went a little strange. A funny, and they ended a funny up thing happened on the way to the ballot box. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so they launched in 2017 into a much more problematic, chaotic political situation that they expected, which made it very tough on them because these are people who had full careers in the military intelligence com- complex and in various levels, including intelligence. And even though circumstances have certainly improved historically, to come out and be part of the To the Stars Academy with all the mandates that were, they were issued uh, with respect to the TTSAAS, uh, you, you're hanging out there. Can't get fired, but opportunities may not evolve. You may have problems with colleagues. This was a very risky and brave move that they made, but they made it in a calculated way because they thought Hillary was going to win the presidency, and they were going to be right there ready to help her along. Mm. And so when she didn't win and the political situation went to hell, they were stuck in limbo. They went ahead and launched in 17 anyway, but not surprisingly. Six years later, we still haven't quite gotten the goal that I believe they intended to get. And so they have been strung out for six years, and they have taken a whole lot of grief, I can tell you. In other words, if you if you got – you know, it's one thing to, to run across a, a short battlefield when they can have a, take a few shots at you. But if you've got to run 2,000 yards, you, you, you're going to have a rough time. So that's what they've had to experience. But they have weathered that storm, and they clearly are winning. And this is good. And so this is how to put in context things like Gary Nolan going on and saying, there's extraterrestrials here. All right. They've been here. And what and one of the other things that 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 is important is that when that, by when, the way, is not a trivial step. That's no, it's not a trivial huge. step. It, it, but it, 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 there but there's there's a logic to all of it. When when Edgar Mitchell makes his statement, he was hoping that other NASA individuals, maybe even astronauts, might might be willing to follow suit. But they were not. It was 2008. It wasn't going to happen. When Bigelow came forward, he probably knew that the TTSA was going to launch uh, uh, just a few months later. And so in a sense, I think he did what he did to sort of soften up the ground there. So when they went forward, to make it a little bit easier. All right. Uh, and that's fine. Uh, Burchette is basically pursuing a political angle. He he wants to be relevant. He has a right to, to to address this issue, even though his committees are not pertinent per se. 
And so he's bold and he's doing it. All of this makes it easier for other people to do it. Now the situation is escalating. And so what Gary Nolan did is send a message to scientists all over the country and maybe even around the world. If you have known there's been an extraterrestrial presence since you were in grad school, maybe you could speak now. Maybe you could come <laughs> forward and say that. It's okay. And that just makes it harder on the truth embargo. It's the same thing with Burchette. He is making it easier for other politicians to do that. Right? Don't think of it as laying down cover. Think it is who is going to go first. It's always tough to be the first person. And so he has said it. Now, the, a lot of the others are staying back, not because they're afraid to follow him, but because they are involved in this political process, and they don't want to undermine it. Well, the so two Mark people Warner that I can think of – not come out and do what Burchette did. The two people, two congressional people I can think of who have not been shy about this are Rubio and Gillibrand. Rubio, Republican senator from Florida, Gillibrand, the Democratic senator from New York State, they crafted this um, of course, yeah. bill which mandated that annually now the uh, was is is it the Department of is is the Director of National Intelligence or is it the committee or or the office itself in the Pentagon Arrow Arrow make a answers. annual report and they just did an annual report, and we didn't obviously get to talk about that. So Rubio and Gillibrand have been very visible in a very legal process to move disclosure along in the House and the Senate. Well, yeah, Rubio made the first move, right? Uh, he made the first move. Uh, it's interesting that he was the one that did that, but he was the one that did the first move, and he put some language in the COVID uh, omnibus bill in 2020, and that, that launched the, the legislative process in a way that had never happened before, and he gets tremendous credit for that, absolutely. Now, then the election changed hands, and Warner took over, and so in the next bill, the person that kind of stepped in was Gillibrand. Now, one of the things that a lot of people may have wondered, if Rubio, when he was chairman of the Intel Committee, makes that bold move and puts that legislation in, which got him a huge amount of favorable press, why didn't Warner, when he became the chairman… Mm be the one to put in uh, language from his side of the aisle into the next bill to share some of the glory. Because Warner, of course, and I believe Democrats. the answer to that yeah. is fairly straightforward. Okay. Warner is never going to run for president. Rubio ran for president in May again. Gillibrand had run for president in May again. Yep. And Warner felt, okay, if somebody's going to do it on our side, it should be someone with presidential aspirations like Rubio, and so she ends up taking over that that uh, taking point on that and puts the language in. And but then Warner shows up as the principal architect of the language in the really significant 2023 bill. So all three of them, right? These are three of the most powerful senators in Congress. Two Dems, one Republican, have been key in the legislative process. The House has been participating. Andrew Carson held a hearing. Ruben Gallego was put some, tried to put, put some language in the House bill. Uh, of course, Burchette is speaking out. Right? Mike Gallagher definitely got involved because he was on Andrew Carson's committee. So these are – there is a significant number of individuals in Congress that have formally gotten involved, but it gets better because uh, about a month ago, uh, Rubio sends a – puts out a press release announcing that they had sent a letter to – 
um, Kirkpatrick, in which the head of the Arrow office in the Pentagon, yeah, in which they were they were saying, look, it, we need to uh, speed things up. Funding is not moving forward as, as, as appropriate as much as it should. And this letter was signed by 13 other senators from the House Intel Committee. I believe they were all Intel Committee senators. Uh, so, again, the number of members of Congress that are publicly going out and literally connecting themselves to the process is escalating by the months. It wasn't that long ago that the only member of Congress addressing this issue was Stephen Schiff. He had a very rough time. He wasn't treated very well. He was embarrassed and a few years later died of a rather unusual squamous cancer. That was the past. Now, members of Congress are competing with each other on this issue. And one of the reasons they're doing that is because this issue is the most nonpartisan issue on the planet. It is as safe politically as anything you can do. It allows you to be honest and straightforward without without having a political uh, position or posturing. In other words, it allows you to look good, and these people need to look good. They look bad, and and their 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 approval ratings are dropping. Congress is 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 not is not uh, thought well of. This is their way out of the hole that they've dug for themselves for the last thirty or forty years, and they are starting to get that. And of course, I've been telling them that for eight or nine years, every chance I can get on these podcasts and other interviews. But hey, folks, this is your lifeline. Grab it. This is your way out of the swamp, I guess, as some people call it, where you can act like real human beings with real brains and speak the truth, and you'll find that people really like you when you do that. Hey, you can even act like <clears throat> statesmen. Yeah, that too. Well, it's planetary. So that's, that's a perspective on, on Nolan and other things that are happening, but it's, there's more happening than that. I mean it's, it's growing. It's speeding up. It, it, uh, hearings are coming at any moment. They could be announced tomorrow. wouldn't shock me at all. Okay, we are at the top of the hour. My guest for the first half of the show, give or take, is Stephen Bassett. Robert Morningstar is warming up in the uh, batting circle over there in the, you know, by the dugout. He's going to come at us with some really interesting, different information from a different perspective, and uh, I imagine it will be a very lively uh, discussion indeed. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Tonight we're grappling with the step-by-step practical down-to-earth nitty-gritty of the politics of disclosure we shall return Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. 
support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, May 28th, 2023. We're having a roundtable discussion, and Robert will join us shortly, about the uh, new developments in this rather arcane field of political disclosure of a reality that has been with us for at least 70-some years. But if we go by what Dr. Gary Nolan says, that ETs have been with us for a long, long time. And in my family model, which is that the ETs he's referring to are, in fact, humans who just don't happen to have a piece of real estate in the uh, San Fernando Valley, then it all kind of comes together in an extraordinary set of coming revelations. So, back to Steve. Uh, Let me ask about what happened at the latest uh, hearing where the results from the year-long efforts per the legislation of Rubio and Gillibrand were presented this year, this summer, this spring actually, to the American people for the first time. Was there anything notable that was released? No, not really. Uh, And these aren't hearings. These are briefings. Uh, These are people being called up to give a briefing, a public briefing. But probably there was also a private briefing to various members that are interested in this subject. Gillibrand uh, had one specifically for Kirkpatrick, but she also, in her subcommittee of the Armed Forces, uh, her subcommittee on emerging threats and capabilities, which is a subcommittee of the Armed Forces Committee, she had uh, she had uh, Lloyd Austin up there, but not to talk about UAP, other matters. But while she had him there, she asked him about the slowness of uh, Arrow's funding and so forth. Ah. And he gave her an, an intelligent response uh, about, well, it takes some time to to, uh, to get things set up and get the funding in place and so forth. And, and most people don't even know that happened, but it did. And it was the first time in the history of the country that a uh, secretary of defense was asked a UAP question by a member of Congress. The number of firsts that are happening in the last three years is off the charts. And so, look, 
I've been talking about disclosure for a long time. I've tried to project its possibilities, prospects, good, bad, whatever. I've tried to err on the side of optimism uh, because we've had some opportunities to get this done and things have happened that didn't happen. But let me be clear. This is nothing like the previous 25 years or 26 years that I've been involved. We are at the end of this embargo. It cannot sustain itself much longer. It's crumbling, but it's going to crumble with style. It's going to do it with some order and, and uh, uh, protocol. So is uh, to, how would you say, just make it easier for the public to accept the ultimate outcome, uh, also make the government look like it's doing the right thing, um, and that's okay. It's, it, it, it's like diplomacy. There are a lot of things that are done in global diplomacy, which, which are, seem ridiculous to the average citizen. They, they go through this rigmarole and everything else, and they're going, why do you do that? Well, because it's human nature, and ultimately diplomacy is still about humans and their interactions through their leaders with each other. And if you don't go through these things, somebody gets missed or irritated. And next thing you know, you're in a trade war or a real war. And so that's part of life, diplomacy and protocols and what have you. Now, the government has been able to avoid having to deal with this issue really at all. But that's over. And so now they're finally doing the right thing. They could have done this in 53. Truman chose not to. They should have done it in 50 – I'm sorry, 48. Truman chose not to. They could have done it in 53. Eisenhower – I'm sorry. Let me get this right. Um, yeah, uh, Truman again chose not to. And then uh, we should have done it after, uh, after the Cold War ended uh, during the, uh, the Clinton administration. He gave it a shot. It didn't work. Uh, and so that, and that was uh, almost, uh, uh, what, 27 years ago. And it's taken 27 years to get to another opportunity. And now, but this time we've seized the day. And again, the credit has got to go to those 10 individuals, put their legacies and career, you know, potential, you know, other possibilities in their life at risk by coming forward in a group and saying, we're going to invest, we're going after this issue, we're dealing with this issue, but they clearly were dealing it from a perspective that's obviously true and proceeded to involve themselves. Uh, but it turned out to be a much longer haul than they thought. It turned out to be very tough on all of them. But three of them, without question, have stuck it out. And these are the three that I think will get the, the big accolades afterwards. Um, uh, and those are, of course, Elizondo, Mellon, and Nolan. What I wonder about is, knowing enough academics, Nolan is so adamant and his 100% kind of rankled me because real scientists never, ever say anything is 100%. He could have said... Uh, come on, I'm telling you, scientists don't. Ask, ask an astrophysicist, do you think the Earth is round on a scale of 1 to 100? That's different. 100%. That's different. That's different. That's okay. different. There's plenty of 100% out there. You don't get there, and you shouldn't get there, uh, casually... Right. But then when he Without was asked question. for his evidence, it became a round robin where he basically showed the Arrow office and the fact that a lot of congressmen are now talking about the subject as his proof of ETs among us, which I thought was kind of weird. Everybody does that. They, they, okay, prove it. 
It's ridiculous, right? And he he knows that, but he he's not gonna he's not gonna push back on that. It's like somebody sitting up there and saying, "Well, I have we're absolutely absolutely certain uh, about uh, non-locality in, in in quantum mechanics or any number of, of major quantum mechanical issues." And then the, the person asking the question, "Well, well, can you prove it?" Yeah, could you prove the basis of quantum mechanics right here, right now, to my satisfaction? Well, but in order to quantum have mechanics in, from you know a, 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 a computer game, no. In order yeah. to have a scientific position that ETs are passing seamlessly among us, living no, among us, no, he did not say working. that. Yes, he did. He did. Not yes, he, he did not. And, He said they are here and they have been here. And All then right. he was asked further questions, and he said they've been living among us. And working among us. So I will have to check the video. How tape does on that. he? But it's not just this one show. It is. It is snowballed. Others, you know, have emailed him, and others have grabbed him in the hall. In other words, it, it's gotten away from just New York. My point is this: for him to announce that with such certainty, he should have had ready some kind of a modicum of evidence, at least a theory. That a lot of ETs are not bug-eyed, you know, um, gray-headed grays. They're basically human, and they can pass seamlessly well, because they're – well, you can disagree all you, you want. You and I are never going to agree on this. They're not human. I don't believe for a second I guarantee human. you they're human. And, and, and that, that's a debatable thing, but this idea that you, you – that They that are no family. Gosh. Stephen, their family's no job wasn't to go on a talk show or go in a conference and prove the extraterrestrial presence. That has already been proven beyond a reasonable doubt long ago, not once, but many times. We're talking it's about done. the ones it's that are that, are that are here, that are living among us Again, for a I, long, I long time, as he said. I do not – ETs I – will, I will review the, the thing if he said that. Uh, if he said that, then he's probably a little out in front of his skis, right? Well, I can't wait uh, to ask him the question directly. Look, so. look, look, extraterrestrials are engaging a planet. The details are increasingly less important until what? we finally acknowledge no, they're that they're not. here. Debating all of these endless threads is how the truth embargo has survived all this time. Right. In other words, don't 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 focus on the actual fundamental key truth. Let's just go round and round and round and round about this and that and this and that and this and that, while the government continues to sail on in the truth embargo. Unaffected. Gentlemen, no. may I ask a question? Ah, Robert. Yeah. I tell you what. Why don't you yeah. hold it? Because well, no. Uh, well, no, we, we, no, no. We, we have plenty of time. Magic word. The word is embargo, and I have a question from a listener, a very mm -hmm. distinguished listener. She okay. called me during the break. And it's from Barbara Honiger. And she wants to know from Stephen, Stephen, what has changed and why has the embargo been partially lifted and why is the government trying to extricate itself from seven, 75 years of cover-up? And then I will have my own questions. But on behalf of Barbara Honiger, why has, what has changed to make the embargo begin to lift? You can imagine that that's a question that several Many, many books will be written about to try to piece the history of this together. Uh, and in a few minutes, the simplest way I can put it is the truth embargo was a very difficult thing to pull off when they managed it. And then as you move into the 21st century with the explosion of communications, 
internet, social media, billions of cell phones with cameras, ability to communicate at will. Uh, the information, uh, historical information, as well as new information regarding to the phenomena, just instantly spreads. Uh, you've got people like, you know, <laughs> uh, um, my good friend, uh, oh God, my short-term memory is getting so awful, um, the, the Black Vault, um, who has been, he's got millions of documents now in his, in his uh, files that he's gotten through FOIA, and they're available online. Uh, you've got the internet where you can go and, and look at all the CIA documents on the subject they put out years ago, and on and on and on. In other words, the truth embargo could not possibly survive the new technological world where it began, when it began, where when it began, which was in 1947, to try to imagine the two differences. And so that inevitably meant the truth embargo was, could only last a certain length of time. Now, in terms of the turning point in, as this moved forward, I, I look at it this way. Uh, there have always been many, many people in, throughout our government and military services who felt that the people should know the truth about that. Nobody's shocked about that. All, they've always been there. Uh, but they have been dutiful. They've honored their, their oaths, and they have not violated the law, and they have they pretty much kept it to themselves. That's their opinion. They keep it to themselves. Over the years, their numbers have grown and grown, and by 2016, 15, I think there was so much consensus, or at least so many people within our own government, that really felt this thing needed to end. It, 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 it lasted long enough. It's over its shelf life. And it just turned out that a group of them came together. The, the full origin story of that is not known yet, but I'm sure one day it will be. And privately met and discussed how they could take action if and when they are out of government as private citizens. And so that ultimately ends up in this group called the To the Stars Academy, and they come forward, these 10 people. So that 10, those 10 individuals, including Nolan Elizondo and Mellon and others, kind of stood or standing in for all of the other people who know damn well there's an ET presence, but they're still working in government. They cannot say anything. It is not their job. There's, there's legal reasons why they can't, but they know that it's time to end it. And so they're standing in for them, and they move forward. To advance this issue in very significant ways, doing things that people like myself could not do. I don't have the credentials of a Chris Mellon. I can't just go sauntering around the hill and talking to members of the intel committee. He could. He was bringing witnesses up there. Elizondo has the intelligence background, right? and so he is able to address that. Uh, somehow they got those – well, they were given three camera gun camera footages out of the DOD, which is a very notable thing, and they brought them to the New York Times. Right. Um, I'd like to say the credit, as far as the military is concerned, the credit has to go to the United States Navy and to President Trump, Dennis the Menace, as I like to call him, because he had the guts to really go out in front of the world audience and gave the Navy the permission to come out with the Nimitz um, videos and the uh, Commander Fravor and the rest of it. So that was the turning point. And it's been a very long battle, and it's been the United States Navy since 1947 that has been trying to tell the American people the truth. I have on my desktop here a letter that was written by Major Donald Kehoe in 1952 after the overflights of the White House by UFOs. And later on in the program, uh, I may want to 
quote from it. So uh, I salute the United States Navy, and I'm thankful that President Trump had the guts to bring it out. And since he let the cat out of the bag, the cat is not going back into the bag. So thank you. The other thing I want to talk about later, you mentioned Stephen Schiff and the, uh, the bad treatment that he got. <clears throat> he was also joined in that call for disclosure or investigation by Harrison Schmidt. And I've just been looking up the record. There have been four astronauts elected uh, to the Senate, and we have one in there, Mark Kelly. But Harrison Schmidt and Stephen uh, Schiff were working together on a very important thing, and, and I'll discuss that later when, when I come around to my items. But thank you for the answer, and uh, on my behalf and on behalf of Barbara Honiger. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad Barbara got that, that through. I was trying to have Keith contact her directly, but I'm, I'm, I may have lost Keith momentarily here. Uh, Robert, did you have a question for, for uh, Stephen? Let me see. I, I had more of that. You, you said you had one from Barbara, and then you had one yeah. on your own. Or, or was it a point well, you were making? The, the one on my own is um, why did the power structure, what has shifted? It's basically the same one. Which element in the power stru structure has been bumped aside to allow this disclosure to come back? And it looks to me like it is the Congress that is reasserting its authority to take back its power that was wrested away from them by MJ-12 and the deep state. And I'm also glad you mentioned, uh, you didn't mention his name, but John Greenwald and the yeah, Black John Greenwald. Wall. Yeah. He's is it very John important. or Jeff? John. John. John, okay. John Greenwald. And of course, there's um, the MajesticDocuments.com, Robert, Dr. Robert Wood and Ryan Wood. All of us have been working very hard and we have documents. And later on, I'm going to talk about the U.S. Army documents. And I'd like to say right now, happy birthday to Henry Kissinger and most happy birthday to President John F. Kennedy, whose birthday, 106th birthday would have been today. And I think it's historic so we're having this Didn't conversation. Yes. Okay. I'll, I'll turn it back to you, and I'll gestate new questions. <laughs> okay, Stephen. Go ahead. Uh, well, again, uh, the history of the last days of the truth embargo uh, will take some time to sort out. Let me uh, but, but, before been... I before I have you go on. Let me let me put on the record my own model, which is that none of this happening now is by accident. That there's a, there's a reason why it didn't happen in, you know, 48 and 52 and 55 when the Robertson panel and then during the Clinton, sure. because it has to coincide with the peak of the physics and the receptivity of consciousness in this model. And that was on, you know, on the board after 2016. That's when the real shift between eras the so-called Vedic cycles, uh, the Mayan calendar, and all that was not 2012, it was 2016. So since 2016, we've been in this, you know, physics environment where this kind of disclosure, and I'm going to paraphrase, you know, Jesus in the New Testament, you know, throwing seed on barren ground, what do you get? Barren ground. 
But if you throw the seeds on fertile ground, then something can take root. And metaphorically speaking, when the physics is right, when, when the surf is up, you can surf. And so I think it's been a long time effort to get the right window for where this process can get now to the next level. And that's my model on the table. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, we all so, got our models. So, so this briefing, well, models can be tested. They're predictions. Science mm-hmm. is nothing if it's not prediction. So back to this, uh, you know, congressional briefing business. The last two briefings that I've seen have been pathetically empty of anything really interesting. Is that on purpose, or is it because the there are some, you know, backpedaling on the part of you know, the Pentagon, the military, you know, subterranean politics, whatever. In other words, I would have expected some eye-popping revelations that would get everybody talking under the aegis of an official congressionally mandated briefing, and it hasn't happened. Why not? Again, uh, the, there's an orderly process underway designed to achieve a specific goal which is setting the platform and the stage for the president to finally confirm this uh, presence, this non-human presence, and turning up at a hearing and coming up with eye-popping stuff is out of line. Well, wait, wait, wait. Uh, hang on, hang on. Because when you been on the show before, you said the sequence is going to be House, Senate, hearings, witnesses, probably military, then White House announcement. Are you saying right. tonight that that is going to be reversed? that we look to the Biden White House to make the first real move? No, 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 no. Again, okay. when Kirkpatrick comes up on the Hill, when Moultrie and Bray come up on the Hill, this is a briefing. It's a report to members of Congress to show that we are paying attention and they can ask some questions so everybody looks like they're doing their job, right? It's not about, ooh, who can get up there and say something exotic, who, who can pop something new, maybe drag some files up there that nobody knew we had? No, no. It's, it's dry. It's the way almost all business in Washington is. If you ever went to some regular, just regular hearing, <clears throat> I have. you go right to sleep. And so, but everybody, after 76 years of, of living under a truth embargo where we're told to not believe our lying eyes, people are anxious and their patience is thin. Yeah, you know, the problem They're not with that happy theory about is, having to go through this. The problem, and Stephen, with that with that model is, you know, it's it's it, to those of us outside the Washington process, which is most people, it looks like Lucy in the football, you know, promising, Again. promising, and then nothing. No, well, it wasn't nothing. Uh, oh, nothing there has been plenty of something here. More has yeah. happened in the last five years. No, no, no. I'm talking about this spring. A few weeks ago, there was a briefing per the congressional legislation. That briefing was basically a big nothing burger. How many times nothing. can you do a nothing burger and people keep hoping and hoping and hoping? I, you know, I, nothing burger is not in my political vocabulary. What was the say. substance it's, of it's, that it's briefing? Like, I, when, 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 a, when a head of a brand-new department set up specifically to engage the UAP issue, first of its kind, comes up and gives a report of what's going on and answers some questions from members of Congress in the context 
of the last 75 years, that's not a nothing, Bergen. That's extraordinary. It is protocol. It is, it is perfunctory. It is simply the stuff that you normally do. And another way of But you're it, saying that it was normal for Congress, but it wasn't really meant for voters, taxpayers, or people, citizens. Well, this, this is one of the reasons Richard, you got people me. like – this is May why you have – Hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, yeah, Robert, I'm going to bring you on in five minutes, so we'll, we'll okay. do well, – you know, uh, We have an important question from Barbara Honegger. Another one, okay. Yes, another one. So it um, is the, under what law was the embargo imposed? I had my answer. But oh, great me. question. Great. It's essentially the National Security Act of 1947. Exactly. Yeah, I would agree. Now, that, that law was covers virtually about anything. Uh, and uh, that law was written at, the, at, at a time when our, our government was well aware that Soviets had the atomic bomb secrets, both mm-hmm. atom and, and hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would test the atom bomb first a couple of years later. Uh, they knew it was coming. And, so, and, and these were very heavy people with very sharp. They just won a major war. They weren't, they weren't fools. And they realized that this issue could, had to be contained and those, because of those reasons. Now, I could make a case they should have gone forward, but you know, I wasn't there. Uh, I, have to, I can't pretend that I was there. I wasn't. That's, that's how it starts. And it's been national security all along. And, yeah. and I've talked about that at infinitum. But let me get back to what you're saying, Richard. Look, this process that they're going through is designed to serve a very important purpose, and that is to show that they're doing the right thing over it's not some show or broadway play where it's going to have a big big deal in the third act they have to go through this not only for uh, for the for the political reasons uh but also for history so so in order to end this embargo and not take and have it go relatively well and not be too disruptive they need to do the things they should have done years ago and and running out in the, in the, on the White House lawn with big signs saying the ETs are here, it's not going to do it. That's not what, what they, they should be doing. People are impatient. I get it. And part of the reason that it's been dragged out is because this is all happening in some of the most turbulent political times in our <laughs> history. It's happening during the middle of a pandemic, which is still going on. It's happening at a time when a new war in Europe has put us closer to nuclear war than ever. And yet this disclosure process continues anyway. And so all I can say is I go on, give my interviews. I tell people things are going well. Try to stay calm. Don't get too worked up, but also understand that as this goes forward, you got to carry two things in your head at the same time. One, this process is going forward for good purpose. Even though they can't say everything, even though they're limited in what they can do, it has a good purpose. It has disclosure at the end. And at the same time, you hold in your head the fact that, yeah, and the government's known about it since the 1940s. Right? These two things can be in your head at the same time. And by understanding that, people are going to be less – Feel like they're being less abused, not taken uh, for a ride again. They get it. They understand what's going on, and that's my job is to try to minimize the cognizant dissonance that this process is taking. It is almost over, I think, and so I invite people to keep cool. And one of the reasons is is that it's still possible to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, right? Things could get out of hand. Some people could get really intense. You could, I don't know, any, any number of things could happen. Uh, we don't want that. 
get out of their way and let them do their job, right? Okay, we are at the bottom of the hour. Everybody stay right where you are. My guest this morning, Stephen Bassett. I keep wanting to give you a doctorate. I wonder why that's going on this morning. I don't have a doctorate. (laughs) But you are an executive director of a very important, soon to be even more important and more visible, Paradigm Agency, Civilian. (laughs) (laughs) Paradigm Research Group, which will be converted to a nonprofit soon so I can raise more money. Super. Okay. In the background, Karen Carpenter. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we come back, Robert Morningstar is going to bring us an additional set of perspectives, data, and points of view. Don't turn that dial. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. that, of course, is the question, isn't it? Are they out there, including the human-looking ones who can masquerade as humans, uh, according to uh, Gary Nolan, are they our friends? See, the reason I think the family model is kind of important is because we've seen that on Earth the most intense and vicious fights are between friends and family and those who are related. If, in fact, we're not dealing with, quote, aliens, but we're dealing with members of the extended human family that has tens of thousands of years 
of unknown history here on Earth. And if we, in fact, are interacting with distaff members of the family, how can we possibly know if that's representative of other beings, other species, other planetary systems? In other words, knowing who you're dealing with, I think is kind of important. Anyway, uh, back to the program. Stephen Bassett and Robert Morningstar are my guests this morning. Uh, Stephen, before we let Robert kind of take over for a little while, do you have any anything you want to kind of put as a book into uh, what we said in the first part of the program? Stephen? Unmute the mic. You know, we've been doing this for a very long time. Remember, people keep forgetting to unmute. Stephen, just unmute. It's a protocol. <laughs> oh, is that the reason? There we go. So oh. sorry. Um, the next thing I expect is an announcement from one of the committees that they're going to hold the hearings because we know quite a few witnesses have already been interviewed. Uh, in fact, it's been weeks since we knew that and plenty of time for some of the committee staff to interview them. And once that's done, it's just a matter of scheduling it. And, and uh, they know full well that that announcement is going to generate a very, very intense response. So it's going to be timed uh, well, but it could happen at any time. I, I, have, I have to check the calendar. Logically, it'll be when they're back in session. Uh, I don't know if they're in session now, but if one will check the calendar. They, they just came back because of the debt ceiling. They have three days, 72 hours to look at the bill. Then they're going to vote in the House on Wednesday and probably yeah. in the Senate on Friday. So, yeah, they're back in Washington now. Yeah. Now, the question is, are they going to, are they going to go home after this? But, but it'll be a time when, when at least the Senate clearly is in session. I think that the hearing needs to start in the Senate. I imagine it will. Uh, and the Intel Committee is the logical one. But who knows? Right. But the real hearing, when they bring in the heavy duty witnesses, military witnesses with the major testimonies that we know are coming, um, that should probably be in front of the Intel Committee. So that's the other thing. And I'd like to mention that uh, this topic and many, many others are going to be uh, gone over in a huge event in Indian Wells this coming weekend. I'll be speaking. I'll be doing a panel, a presentation, uh, and that's Contact in the Desert, Indian Wells Renaissance Hotel, uh, June 2 to 4. 64 speakers, I think. Wow. Uh, and the level of excitement is going to be pretty high because of all the things that have been happening we've talked about tonight. Yep, yep. Okay, um, stick around if you want to. If you don't, if you have something else to do, you can go away. But I'd like you to stick around because Robert has some really intriguing things. And the one final thing that I want to get clear in my mind, Stephen, your political prediction is the next move on the board is going to be either hearings in the House or Senate and the White House is not going to be doing anything up front, right? The White House has been staying out of this assiduously. Uh, it was forced to take a move it didn't want to make uh, and probably shouldn't have over that whole balloon fiasco when it said, oh, we're going to set up something in the White House. They shouldn't have done that, but they did. But overall, it's staying out of this because the way this has to play out is that the, the, the issue needs to be presented to the president. 
for the president's consideration, and then the president can make a decision based upon the testimony along with the rest of us. What Clinton tried to do, and, and I'm not faulting him for that, is with at the behest of Rockefeller, he actually was going after the stuff. He was going to the Pentagon and giving this, and naturally the Pentagon said, forget about it. Uh, it needs to be the other way around, and that's what's going on. And so to keep it as apolitical as possible, to keep it as nonpartisan as possible, uh, the Congress, the witnesses, the DOD need to do their job and present that to the world and to the president at the same time. And that's what hearings will do. And then at, that, at some point, the, the, the overwhelmingly convincing testimony will make it possible for the president to say, hey, I'm convinced. My people are convinced. Uh, this is non-human technology, and I'll bet you want to know more, and so do I. And we're going to start working on getting, that, getting information to you, and we're going to hold some more hearings, and we're going to find out exactly what is uh, the, the, the basis for the, these, these entities. What do they want? And uh, what do we know and all of that, whatever you're going to say. Uh, and that's it. That's disclosure. Well, disclosure is the moment that he confirms it, but it's that process. And so I, I would expect the White House to say and do nothing and shouldn't do anything. They should just wait and watch. To the front of the stage. <laughs> do you think yes. that Nolan is referring to grays or to humans when he talks about ETs living on Earth? In other words, is he referring obliquely to, as I call it, the Superman model? I think he's talking <clears throat> about humanoids and um, more than one type of alien. I found the most interesting thing about uh, Dr. Nolan's background is pathology. And this is a, a fascinating field because a pathologist deals with dead bodies and why they die and the circumstances, I suppose, around them. But it brings to mind two other <clears throat> microbiologists. A microbiologist and a surgical technician came out many years ago. One of them was named Dan Burrish, Captain Dan Burrish, a U.S. Navy, and the other one is Emory Smith. And if you go to Google and type in Emory Smith and Gaia, you will see the video testimony of a very interesting, very interesting fellow who served for 20 years in a compartmentalized program. He says that he was given biological tissues to analyze, to dissect, and over the years he was given bigger and bigger specimens. And ultimately he was presented with an arm of an extraterrestrial that had iridescent blue skin. It's a quite fascinating testimony. Now, Dan Burrish, microbiologist, was assigned to S4. That's an area in near the Area 51 reservation. And his job was to study biological tissue from an alien named J-Rod. Apparently, A-Rod had some maladies, and they were trying to find a way of uh, treating him. So that was was this supposedly one of the Roswell aliens that was kept in captivity and interrogated? Very intriguing story. Very intriguing story. He's uh, the, the next thing before I, I give you this background. UFOs are not aerodynamic craft. They are actually 
time machines. They have the ability to travel through time. And our perceptions join their intermittent appearance crossing our space and join them together as if it's a solid object going through our space-time as a, like an airliner. But the Air Force came to the conclusion, and I got this from a captain in the Foreign Technology Division, that UFOs, and I will insist on using the old term, and I will <laughs> also say flying saucers uh, at times, that they are actually time machines, and their appearance is an intermittent appearance uh, between time frames. It's a whole different jargon that you have to use to understand this concept. So apparently J-Rod was one of these, uh, the occupants of a time-traveling craft that crashed in 1953. So it was not the Roswell incident? No, no, it was a different uh, crash. There were several. See, the Roswell incident uh, is kind of a cover-up over more important crashes. And the most important crash that I've found in MJ-12 documents that I acquired is the Aztec crash of March 1948, because that craft was brought down by the concentration of very powerful microwave uh, radars. The UFOs had been hanging around and and intruding, you know, into uh, military airspace, Los Alamos, White Sands. Yeah, I should say that during the war, World War II, radar was perfected. My friend Arthur Clark was part of the the mm-hmm. process in England, but the wavelengths or the frequency was much lower than the developments technologically of radar out of places like Raytheon and in Massachusetts and all that post-war in the Korean War. So the frequencies and the power levels ramped up remarkably compared to what we had going on during World War II. And so the theory is out there. I don't know whether it's true or not, but the theory is that Roswell in 47 by one of these high powered new fangled radars at a much higher wavelength. Not one, but eight. Smaller wavelength. Sorry. Not one, but eight of them. Because the Roswell crafts had been intruding into the Trinity site, Los Alamos, uh, and other uh, military uh, So the military decided to try this as a weapon? Yep. Ah. They had been watching them for days. They had been watching these intrusions for several days. And so then they decided... This would be to, the Army Air Force back then. Yeah, the Army Air Force. It was still one unit, one, one entity. And so they concentrated eight radars. Some of them were in West Texas. The other ones were in New Mexico. Oh, how interesting. And they started zapping the UFOs. And since... Uh, let me just give you a, a side note. If you ask the United Nations for UFO data under freedom of information, they'll tell you, we don't have any. And that's because I found out. Well, first of all, they're not subject to freedom of information. Actually, actually, they are. Yeah. But let me just say this. Let me say this. Um, I think uh, Stephen remembers and in 2008 to 2010, there was a, a push, an initiative to get disclosure, not through the U.S. government, which was, you know, blocked. But the U.S. Navy tried to get disclosure through the United Nations, and I was invited to be part of that process. Well, remember, I spoke on 
extraterrestrial artifacts on Mars in the Von Karman Auditorium right. to two packed right. auditoriums, which, yeah. by the way, has 195 chairs. Yeah. Well, I went deeply into it, and there's a, they started to investigate, actually, in 1979, and they had a resolution. I think it's UNGA 433, if I remember the term correctly. Jacques Vallée was there. Stanton Friedman was there, Thomas Reed of the Thomas Reed family abduction experiences in Massachusetts. But I found out after going deeply into, into it that the United Nations doesn't call them UFOs. <clears throat> they call them UHFOs, ultra-high frequency objects. So oh. if you ask for a UFO, they can say, oh, we don't have any. Well, wait a minute. That sounds like they're flickering in and out of reality exactly ah exactly so which brings me to the subject of john greenwald and the black vault and i salute him john greenwald started writing FOIA letters when he was 16 and he started getting uh, now it's a mountain so john greenwald uh, more than 12 years ago gave me a document which was the army counterintelligence group, which was a, pre- a predecessor of the CIA, and in that there were these letters that were written to General Lucius Clay, who was the supreme allied commander in Europe and uh, in Germany, uh, post-war Germany. And so a certain German sailor, Kriegsmarine sailor, named Guido Bernardi, wrote him a letter saying that he had been in U-boats and that in his U-boat tour, there was one, two missions to Japan. And one of them was to deliver liquid mercury to the Japanese who were working on uh, a secret technology. And it also was accompanied by German scientists. So during this long voyage from Germany to Japan in a U-boat, he got to know the German scientists And after the war, this is now 1946, he's been released, the war is over, Germany lost it. And he writes to General Lucius Lucius Clay about this invention that the Germans had uh, developed. And he called them spirit ships. The Germans had developed a technology that they could take a material object and put it into the spirit realm. These are his terms. And that these spirit ships could travel uh, at incredible speed because they weren't traveling through our space. So it was really a true hyper-dimensional exactly. technology. You know what? I, I visualize it as the German scientists figured out how to turn a material object into uh, an effervescent suds and introduce it into the Sea of Dirac and fly through the quantum world and materialize in another place. That's my analogy. They learn how to sail through the sea of Dirac. Those of you who are involved in physics and quantum mechanics, you, you'll know what that is. So Guido Bernardi wrote <clears throat> to Lucius Clay about this. He also wrote about another secret weapon that the Germans had developed, which was to open a hole in the atmosphere against enemy cities so that by opening a hole in the atmosphere, direct sunlight 
could stream down and just destroy the city. Because so of the ultraviolet. Yeah. So these were secret weapons that the Germans were working on. And uh, that's a, an incredible letter. Aside this is that, this ordinary German sailor writing to the supreme commander of uh, uh, what, NATO? Shape. Shape, okay. And that was, of course, the post-war occupation army of the United States uh, in Germany. And the, you know, Bob, yeah, Bob Dean was in that cadre. Yes, and Bob Dean had a lot to say when I talk about uh, JFK and UFOs. Uh, February 12th of 1961, 12 days after President Kennedy was inaugurated, was his first critical UFO crisis. But uh, let me go back. <clears throat> I'm going to jump to item number 10. Well, actually, for, oh, oh. <laughs> item number one first. Okay, let me, let me tell you people how to get there. Okay. Uh, the Other Side of Midnight on the Internet, that's our website. Click on tonight's banner. That will take you uh, for May 28th, uh, Memorial Day. Uh, that will take you to the guest page. Uh, click on uh, under the guest page. You'll see fast links to items. Click on Robert's name. That will take you to his section. Scroll down to item number of 10. No, item number 11, right? Well, no, no, I want to go by one again. Just, oh, okay. This is important. Right. <clears throat> Let's start with number one. Then we're going to go all the way to the bottom. There is Sybilla. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, no. I want to invite everyone to see this movie that was produced by Prism Pictures and Sybilla Clare. Yeah, she's a damn good producer. Uh, beautiful movies, and she just won a prize in Paris for a film called Peril, The Peril of Pauline which has a, a fascinating theme, you know, quantum physics and reincarnation. Wow. But this movie, I'm, I'm very proud to be in this movie. We've worked on it for four years. It was just released last month. And I appear with Linda Moulton Howell and our dear friend Jim Mars. And it is called E.T. Among Us, <clears throat> Volume 7. It's free on tubetv.com. And the subtitle is UFOs, the CIA, and the assassination of JFK. And it brings to light the importance of the UFO issue as the most significant element in the execution, public execution, of President Kennedy. And I'm speaking about his death as having been executed in the truest sense of the word, by the Central Intelligence Agency in collusion with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the FBI. Because during the last couple of months, I was contacted by a friend and colleague, a former major in the United States Marine Corps, a helicopter pilot, pilot and former Virginia State Trooper named Jim Scott. And Jim Scott and I through the good graces of Barbara Honiger, who introduced us, we have found documents that were left by a dying CIA agent named Robert Trumbull Crowley. He took notes. Any relation? Uh, I wonder about that, but I don't want to go on the sidetrack there. <laughs> Let me just say, this man, Robert Trumbull Crowley, was the director of clandestine operations in the CIA. And he took notes of every meeting during which the CIA 
Alan Dulles, William King Harvey, Robert Trumbull Crowley, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, held what I call a kangaroo court-martial, an extrajudicial trial of President Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and condemned them to death for high treason. And the treason involved two things. One, stopping the U.S. invasion of Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis, where they just wanted to jump into hell, not knowing that if they had invaded Cuba, Khrushchev had given his on-field commander absolute authority to nuke the Seventh Fleet. Yeah, and, and there, were, there were tactical nukes, according to McNamara, Ta- that we did not know at the time that the Soviets had right. put in Cuba. Operational well, tactical it, nuclear they, missiles. Yes, they may have known about it, but they thought that the chain of command was so rigid that it had to go from Khrushchev down through KGB and onward, downward through the uh, Russian, uh, Soviet military, that it would take a huge long time for that command to get down because it took a day for their communications to, there was no internet and it took it, it would take a day for the command to come down. So they thought that they could get a jump on Khrushchev, but Khrushchev was a much smarter man than they thought. And he knew about this lag of time in the chain of command. And he gave his on-field commander permission to use tactical nuclear weapons to stop a U.S. invasion. Secondly, secondly, President Kennedy continued to communicate with Nikita Khrushchev, along with Robert Kennedy, through back channels that were evading, I must say, evading uh, CIA. Yeah, including that key ABC correspondent. Yes, John Scali. Yep. He was, the, he was the back channel to get uh, the truce or the, uh, the agreement in the Cuban Missile Crisis. So on November 12th of 1962, excuse me, November 12th of 1963, President Kennedy wrote a letter to the director of the CIA with carbon copies or copies to uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, Department of Defense, Department of the Navy, Department of the Air Force, and NASA, and telling them his desire that they should open channels of communications with the Soviet Union, specifically the Russian uh, Soviet Academy of Sciences, because he intended to engage in joint ventures into outer space and propose a joint trip to the moon. Now, President Kennedy actually made those statements at the United Nations in September. Yep of 1963, and it gave the world hope that the Cold War was thawing, that the, the peril of uh, nuclear war, either by design or by accident, was lessening. And so he gave that order, he, he told them in that memo, a memo that I found in 1994. I, I just investigated, you know, and I found <laughs> the Air Force repository which is in Huntsville, Alabama. And I went in there and I found the blue book files that the Air Force had. And in those files, I found what I call the Angleton Memo. Because handwritten on that memo, it says, it took me me about a year (laughs) to read the handwriting. And it said, Angleton has MJ Executive. 
1994 and 96, I met with Jim Mars in Dallas during one of the conventions, JFK Lancer conventions, and I said, Jim, have you ever seen this memo? Have you ever seen this uh, letter from Kennedy? And he said, no. I said, well, you know, I, I, I emailed it to him. And as a result, he wrote Alien Agenda and subsequently The Fourth Reich. So Jim Mars, Linda Moulton Howe, and I appear in this movie called E.T.'s Among Us, Volume 7, UFOs, the CIA, and the assassination of JFK. That said, let me continue with my gratitude to the Black Vault and John Greenwald, who gave me the U.S. Army documents that included all of the uh, interplanetary phenomenon unit reports on the recoveries at Roswell and other places. Now, in that memo, the IPU, there's item number 10, I believe it is, that says, we, meaning the counterintelligence group of the United States Army, we have discovered that Congressman John F. Kennedy of Massachusetts, son of Joseph P. Kennedy, member of the committee, the reorganization of the government, was briefed by a member of the staff, a staff member of the Secretary of the Air Force, who at that time was Stuart Symington. And he was very close to the Kennedys and to John Kennedy. So they put him on a watch list. And John F. Kennedy became a headache to the deep state, the CIA, Army Intelligence, because he was avidly seeking information about UFOs, about the flying saucer crash at Roswell and throughout his term in the Congress and in the Senate, he kept asking Air Force for more and more information about UFOs. So Kennedy was a member of the Office of Naval Intelligence. He had served in PT boats. PT boats were not attack crafts. Like you see John Wayne and they were expendable attacking Mm -hmm. cruisers. That's great it's really movie. Horrible. Great movie. It's beautiful. It right? made me want to be on PT boats too. But the fact is that the PT boats were stealth craft for spying, built and out I of learned, plywood, so they would not reflect radar. That's right, and were much faster than heavy metal boats. Be that as it may, I found out that John Kennedy was stationed in Guadalcanal, and later I discovered. Yeah, I, Robert, I... Robert, we're at the top of the hour. Uh, my guest okay. this morning is Stephen Bassett, who's quietly listening, and Robert, who is riveting with his information. And when we come back, I have a very important question to ask about timing, because we all talked about timing. You know, why is disclosure now? We all have our models. I have a model for why JFK decided in September of 1963 to go in front of the United Nations and do an actual 180 on beating the Soviets to the moon, basically extending his hand and saying, come with us. Why did he change? Stay tuned, and I'll tell you on the other side. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and I have a secret. We shall return.
the other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode. Two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this now Sunday night, Monday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. My guests, Stephen Bassett and Robert Morningstar. And Robert, I've been looking at this, obviously, almost as long as you have. And given my research and the fact that uh, when he first came into office, according to um, Sorensen, uh, Ted Sorensen, who was uh, Kennedy's chief speaks, uh, spokesman, speechwriter, uh, brainstormer, he kind of, he, he became a kind of a JFK clone because he was so good at matching Kennedy's ideas to the right words at the right time. Um, according to Sorensen's book, he was given the task of every once in a while taking a copy of the Washington Post, walking down the hill from the White House into downtown Washington and standing on a certain street corner and someone from the Soviet embassy would casually walk down the same street and stop at the same corner, and Sorensen would quietly slip him the newspaper, the post, in which there was a personal letter from the president to Khrushchev. And by the same token, Khrushchev responded by doing the same thing and sending letters directly bypassing the intel agencies, the committees, Congress, and all that directly between him and the president. So at the right time, Kennedy got Khrushchev in the fall of 63 to agree, and we know this now from Khrushchev's son, who was for many, many years a professor at Brown University, Khrushchev agreed to join Kennedy and go to the moon in Apollo with the Soviet Union, and a few days later, he was killed. What do you think? That's fascinating. That, it's so important, Richard. This is so important because... I like it, documentation. Yeah, well, it proves that uh, the Operation Zipper documents that Robert Trumbull Crowley left are true and accurate yep. because you, you give the modus operandi whereby... Kennedy and, and Robert, John and Robert, uh, continued to have back-channel communications with Soviets, for which they were condemned to death for high treason. Um, now, 
Well, here's here's one good reason. Hang hang on, Robert, Robert, hang on, hang on, hang on. The reason is very simple. The CIA at this time, after the war, was filled with Nazis. Nazis. They did not want the Russians to be involved in U.S. Nazi-controlled Apollo, so they had to get rid of the guy at the top who was going to open the door and give away the candy store. Well, you know, his father was well aware of this, and he tried to warn... Uh, Joseph P. Kennedy tried to warn Eisenhower, don't take Alan Dulles, don't take him in, or his brother, John Foster Dulles. He said, these guys are going to start mounting their own operations behind your back. They're going to betray your policy. Don't take them. They're Nazis. They were on the side of the Nazis in World War II. Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles were lawyers for the Union Bank, which was owned by Prescott Bush. And the three of them finance Hitler's militarization and his industrialization programs in Germany. When the war broke out, meaning the war in Europe between Britain and France and Germany, they invoked, FDR invoked the Trading with the Enemies Act and forbade American companies from dealing with the Nazis. And as a result, they didn't listen. Prescott Bush and the Dulles brothers kept funding the Nazis. So Joseph P. Kennedy, ambassador to England, found out. And as the saying was in the old days, he dropped the dime on the Dulles brothers and Prescott Bush. And FDR got J. Edgar Hoover to arrest them. But they didn't charge him because FDR was afraid of exposing that there was sympathy for Hitler and the Nazis and the Third Reich in American industry and business. Oh, there was a tremendous support. Tremendous. That's right. That's right. So, in fact, there were so actual they, Nazi they plots. The there were Nazi plots in the Congress. They were listen brought up on this. charges by the Department listen. of Justice, et cetera, et cetera. So listen to this. Alan Dulles becomes part of OSS, and he's stationed in Switzerland. And toward the end of the war, when Germany was... The OSS was the predecessor agency to the CIA. Yes, but along with the paperclip Nazis that we brought in from the middle work. So it turns out that uh, he, Dulles, had developed friendships uh, with both sides. You know, he, he was ostensibly American, but he had a lot of friendships because of his pre-war experience as a, a banking lawyer with the Nazis. And he actually gave wrong information to Patton's army as to where he could capture certain uh, German armies, giving the German armies time to escape through the the forest. Specifically, these were in Austria, and uh, Patton was after them. He wanted to nail them, and he was giving wrong information to give General Wolf and a couple of other generals uh, an exit. So... That was uh, something that was known, that sympathy for Nazis on the part of Dulles, the Dulles brothers. John Foster Dulles became Secretary of State, and Joseph P. Kennedy tried to warn uh, Eisenhower, but he didn't listen. And Joseph P. Kennedy and John Kennedy and the Kennedy family hated Nazis because Brother Joe, if he had lived... Joseph Kennedy Jr. would have been the, the presidential candidate. Yeah, yeah. But he, he died in a terrible, ter- terrible disaster. He volunteered for what turned out to really be a suicide mission. 
flying a B-17 from England loaded, loaded to the, to the brim with explosives. And he was supposed to turn it on to automatic pilot and bail out. But apparently there was a malfunction. And when he turned on the automatic pilot, the plane blew up and they never found uh, any remnants of poor Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. And so for that reason, they hated Nazis, rightly so. They, they were a heinous, heinous group of individuals. And um, so Eisenhower didn't listen. And just as Joseph P. Kennedy told him they would, they started, the CIA under Dulles and the State Department started to uh, initiate their own foreign policy. They overthrew the government of Iran. They uh, went into Central America. They were, they got involved, the CIA got involved in funding their black operations through the drug trade. Reinhard Galen, along with Werner von Braun, the head of rocketry, and rocket science and technology, and Reinhard Galen, the head of the espionage network of the Nazi Third Reich, both surrendered to Americans in the hope of saving their lives because they knew that if the Russians captured them, they would be executed. So Reinhard Galen, Hitler's master spy, overlord of the espionage network, while in a prisoner of war camp, in order to save his life, approached his senior officers and asked them for permission to pitch a deal to the U.S. Army. And he negotiated with General Robert Siebert to turn over the entire Nazi espionage organization that they had in Eastern Europe and in Russia, where we had nothing, in return for safe haven, in return for keeping his name off the prisoner of war list because the Allies were supposed to exchange names of prisoners of war. And he knew, Galen knew, that if the Russians found his name on a list, they would demand his uh, uh, turning them over, surrendering him, and he'd be dead. So they negotiated a treaty through the U.S. Army, unbeknownst to the president, meaning President Truman. And two of the clauses are most important. One clause, which I, I have his book, that's why I'm quoting this, is memoirs, my memoirs by Reinhard Galen. One clause said that their budget could not appear anywhere in the congressional record. And secondly, or lastly, it is understood, and I'm going to quote it or paraphrase as, as closely as I can to my having memorized it, it is understood that we do not work for the Americans. We work with the Americans. It is understood that our first loyalty is to Germany. For if we were to work for the Americans, we would be considered quislings, and that term means traitor. Quisling was a Norwegian turncoat who ran a Nazi occupation government in Norway. So Quisling and Benedict Arnold are, are equivalents. So in the... Uh, the final phrase is very important. He said, it is understood that if ever the interests of Germany and those of the United States should diverge, our first loyalty is to Germany. So there you have in those two clauses that I've just quoted, uh, the reason for black ops and the funding of black operations and the CIA 
Along with the French, the French uh, government was also involved in funding black operations through the drug trade. And all of these elements came out in uh, John F. Kennedy, knew all about all of them. John F. Kennedy tried to stop heroin smuggling out of the Golden Triangle as we were embroiled in Vietnam, a nice French headache that they laid on our laps after Dien Bien Phu. So Kennedy in 1961 and 62, he sent General Edward Lansdale of the United States Air Force over there to shut down the heroin traffic. And while he was there, the Corsican Mafia, which ran the operation, uh, was tailing him with the intention of assassinating him. So he got out of town, he came back, he made his report, and subsequently, after the assassination, Lyndon Johnson sent General Lansdale back to Vietnam to tell them that they were not interested in shutting down the heroin trafficking, they were not interested in stopping the, uh, the French activity in the uh, Golden uh, Triangle, because they had had a meeting with de Gaulle after the assassination, December 22nd of 1963, there was an after-action report, a meeting, at which they discussed the, the success of the assassination. They cited the reasons why it was necessary. They described how they had enlisted the good graces, pardon the expression, of the New York Times and the Washington Post to go along with the Oswald did it, the lone nut story and that they would be cooperating with that narrative um, throughout the rest of our history. So that is called Operation Zipper. The details are contained in a book. One book is called Regicide, which came out in 2002, but was quashed. You could get it in Canada, but you couldn't get it in the United States, by Gregory Douglas. And that's the first time that these documents, Operation Zipper documents from Robert Trumbull, Crowley uh, appeared in print. The second book that details it is called Primary Target, JFK, by Pamela Ray and James Files. And James Files confessed to being a CIA and mafia operative that was enlisted into the CIA while he was in the U.S. Army. He joined the U.S. Army at the age of 17 in 1959 and he was uh, exceptionally gifted intellectually, physically, and psychically. And so he was sent to Laos in uh, secret operations, one called Operation White Star. And he was enlisted to be one of the shooters uh, overlaying, they were overlaying assassination teams in Dewey Plaza. Hmm. Well, and they didn't know about each other. Each one thought they were the only team. So he was part of the CIA mafia team, and he has confessed to having shot President Kennedy from the grassy knoll. Mm. And I've, inter- I've interviewed him four times, and I interviewed his wife last night. And I'm very gratified to be on this program and to tell the people the truth of the JFK assassination on John F. Kennedy's birthday. Well, on his birthday, then it's appropriate that I reveal my secret, right? Yes. Why did why why did Kennedy go in front of the United Nations, do a 180 about face, and basically invite Khrushchev and the Soviet Union to join us in Apollo? Have you ever wondered that? 
Not really. <laughs> I think I know the answer, but let's hear. Let's well, okay, hear your, maybe you know too much. Because it was in it was in the first year of the Kennedy administration, sixty one, that yes. the Project Corona, the super spy satellite program using film and orbit that uh, uh, Eisenhower had launched with the Air Force and the CIA, that it was able to recover its first film from orbit, and they began looking at a whole bunch of stuff. Because I had film to leak to me from Corona. I know categorically, I've got the copies, they actually looked at the moon from the Earth, from Earth orbit, and across space with the right filters, they saw the damn structures on the moon. That's why Kennedy turned 180, and because the CIA had no intention of sharing ancient (laughs) ET ruins or technology with their sworn enemies of the Nazis, they had to kill the guy at the top for doing right. the unthinkable and basically giving away the candy store. Yes, nor did they want to reveal that it is an operational base for an extraterrestrial presence. Well, and that's more debatable, but okay. Please. I like evidence. Do we have evidence of that? Yes, we do. But okay. Robert Dean... I mentioned February 12th is a very important day, and this is a more important reason than ruins on the moon. There was a danger. I don't think the United so States, at all, danger that the United States and Russia could go into a nuclear exchange by mistake, being tricked by UFO fleets that were coming over the North Pole and racing over Canada as if it was a missile attack from Russia. And vice versa. Russia was suffering the same thing as, as fleets of UFOs were racing over Russia, making them think that we had launched a preemptive nuclear strike on them. Now, on February 12th, just 12 days after his inauguration, President Kennedy was alerted to a critical situation in Europe. A mass fleet of UFOs was overflying Eastern Europe, passed, passed over Germany, and they thought it was a Russian missile attack. They passed over Germany, over France, over the United Kingdom. They turned north, went past the North Sea. Then they turned east, flew over Norway, Sweden, the rest of Scandinavia, Finland, and back into Russia, and then straight up into outer space. Now, the Air Force in the 1960s was bedeviled by these things, and they gave them a special code name, and the code name is Fast Walker. That's coming out now. And so, That was the reason President Kennedy realized that through a mistake, Russia and the United States could destroy each other in a nuclear exchange that was precipitated by UFO incursions, a trick of the UFO, an alien entity that seems to have our end in mind. First, another thing. We speak not about ET singular, we speak about ETs plural. And I know that MJ-12 was aware of at least four classes of extraterrestrials. The tall gray, the short gray, the insectoid, and the most fascinating one to me and the documents that I've read are called transmorphic entities. And they are described as pure mind energy that lives and exists in another dimension that is curious about our world and opens interdimensional portals and comes here and can change from pure mind energy 
into any object or being that it wishes to do so. And one of the most intriguing sentences in the MJ-12 documents that I've read are that only once in the history of MJ-12 has an MJ-12 member had the privilege of standing in the presence of a transmorphic entity that was mediated by one of the other extraterrestrials. Another thing is the treaties that were signed by the Eisenhower administration, giving them ranging rights. I sent you a couple of months ago a letter that came to me from Robert Wood and the Majestic Documents. And it's a letter that was written by Robert Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein in June of 1947, discussing the possible ways of integrating into our world an alien entity, EBEs, extraterrestrial biological entities or celestrians, as they referred to them at times, who had decided to settle here. They weren't asking to settle here. They had decided to settle here. And the recommendation, ultimately, that Einstein and Oppenheimer gave was to make a treaty with this extraterrestrial entity that would assure the continuation and survival of our culture, but that would be kept secret from the rest of the world. And that's where the embargo began. Robert Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein ultimately became the real heads of MJ-12. There were the MJ-12 members, uh, whose names we all know, or some of us know. But ultimately, their recommendations and uh, the decisions were sent up to Einstein and Oppenheimer, and they were the big bosses. Have you posted a copy, Robert, of that letter? I I didn't post it tonight. I sent it to you a couple of months ago. Uh, you know, it's documentation. Documentation. You have it. it. Look in your files and post it under your items. I'm just telling you. I memorized the thing. Now, here's the other interesting thing. Before we got to that final recommendation, it's five pages long, they go through all the possible ways of integrating this EBE entity that has decided to settle on planet Earth through treaties of various forms and formats. And so figuring out what lands could we give to them. And they went, well, you know, there's no land that we can give them anymore because everything's occupied. Everything is a national identity, a national border, a government. Um, Antarctica is the only place that is res nullis. They use that term, res nullis. is something that belongs to no one. And then everything else is res communis, something that belongs to the community or communist. So, they go through all of these possible ways, individual treaties with individual nations, a general treaty through the United Nations, res nullis versus res communis, but ultimately they decide to keep the big secret. And Barbara asked the question, why did the embargo start? It started because Albert Einstein and Robert Oppenheimer told the government, make a secret treaty, Give them settlement rights. Give them ranging oh, rights. Oh, we've got to post that letter. That's crucial. Oh, look at Okay, now uh, pause. Okay. Pause for a moment. Barbara, yeah. speaking of Barbara, <clears throat> who was a former policy advisor in the Reagan White House, just to give her a bit of background here, is on Blog Talk. So I'm going to open a channel and see she said something important to contribute, which I need to hit the right button here. Ah. 
too many dials, too many dials. Hang on just one second. All right, so this is called filler. Let me do this properly. Here we are. Barbara, your mic is open. Hello. You're on. Oh, you can hear me? I can hear you fine. Go ahead. <laughs> well, Robert has uh, pretty much answered the question. Um, my fundamental question was, and I have a comment and a, and a question, but my fundamental question that I'd asked him to ask was, um, what was the original national security rationale for the truth embargo? Because, you know, I just, I frankly don't buy. It was uh, a Cold War at the end of World War II and that we were worried about the Soviets having the A-bomb and then the H-bomb. I mean, you know, the Cold War ends in 1991. We still have Russia, and they have more nuclear weapons and more advanced nuclear weapons than ever. Um, so I just don't buy that Russia is still there with more advanced H-bombs and A-bombs and H-bombs, and God knows what else that there should be a breakdown of the truth embargo. The, the the real reason for the truth embargo, I don't believe, has been stated. Now, um, I have already sent you the Einstein Open, Oppenheimer letter, uh, Richard. So you've gotten it from both Robert Morningstar and myself. I just need to find um, it. An, you know. It's an extremely important letter. And yeah. um, it was Carol Rosen who first gave it to me. Um, Excellent. And Carol Rosen had been given it, given it to her um, by, um, you know, uh, I don't know why it's why We're I'm blocking on it. Short term memory you, problems. You know, by, by the head of by the head of the rocket program, Werner von Braun. Yeah, von, she was working directly with Werner von Braun. Yeah, no, no, she was life. a assistant. I understand. That's what I just said. That's another word for it. Um, So she got it from Von Braun or became aware of it from Von Braun. She gave it to me. Um, And Robert has come upon it separately. One of the most interesting things I find about that letter, um, we I don't believe that we have that treaty. I mean, that treaty needs to be FOIA, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, Because if there really was a treaty made, then we should be able to bring that document out. The the five-page letter, one of the most interesting things to me about it, the Oppenheimer-Einstein letter to Truman. Which would, of course, be the perfect political cover for the cover-up. A legal treaty with an ET species that says, you can't tell anybody that we're here, otherwise we're going to blow you away. That's kind of a good excuse for everybody. Well... Yeah, on the other hand, you've got the claims by the two people that uh, Robert mentioned. I believe it was Robert who mentioned them, um, uh, who were uh, knowledgeable about the advanced technology of these so-called spirit craft um, that the Nazis had developed. Now, whether or not that's true, if it is true, this could just be a Nazi, an incredible high-level Nazi plot from beginning to end. Okay. So I found it fascinating that in that five-page letter by Eisenhower and, not Eisenhower, uh, Einstein and Oppenheimer to Truman, 
the way I read it, you have to read it many times. And I believe it's a draft. So we don't know if it was the final letter. I think it's labeled a draft. At least the one that uh, Carol Rosen received and gave to me, a copy of it to me. Um, That's correct. The way I read it, you have to read it many times, is these are, there is a reference, there are references in there to when we, meaning I'm in for, I'm interpreting this now. Einstein and Oppenheimer, I believe they're both Jewish. And there's reference in there to we, presumably the Jews, that we did the first covenant. And so we should be the ones to do the new covenant, meaning the new treaty with these entities. Oh, my. So this is extremely important. Oh, that opens a hell of a can. Um, yeah, we, we need we need to get the actual treaty, assuming one was actually signed. Um, but you know that that rings more true to me as the real reason for the real reason for the so-called truth embargo. Anyway, everyone uh, holds it there. The, everyone holds yeah. it there. We're at the uh, at the break here at the bottom of the hour. My guests this morning are. Stephen Bassett, Robert Morningstar, and we've been joined by Barbara Honiger, who makes the point that I would make, which is we got to post this letter because you need to read it a lot, and then you'll understand more. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. And welcome back, everyone, on this uh, sunny night, Monday morning here in the land of enchantment. End of May, a little before the solstice, with weird things going on in the physics. I want to lay my idea for why the uh, secrecy clamped down. And it's very, very simple, and it goes back to our conversation at the beginning of the show about Dr. Gary Nolan. If, in fact, some aliens, maybe predominant aliens, aliens with powers, with capabilities that are, you know, beyond those of mortal men, if those folks are among us, 
in the 1940s, would anybody have wanted to admit in the U.S. government or anywhere else on earth that those people existed walking our streets, working in our factories, operating in our media? Maybe, good grief, maybe even running for office? Of course not. So I think the biggest secret of the whole UFO cover-up is the fact that we are not alone because we are related to a much larger family, and that's the dirty secret that nobody was ever supposed to know. And now you can all take aim, and the arrows will come. Our family. Go ahead. Not all of them are family. Some of them are quite alien and inimical to human beings. Yeah, but it's not not the problem of the... Robert, 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 stop. When I say something, please stop. It's not the aliens in this model that's a problem. We've dealt with aliens before. We're now dealing with aliens on the southern border. The idea of aliens is kind of, okay, they're they're an enemy maybe. It's family and all the incredible interstitial glue between human civilization and our ancient huge tens of thousands of years of suppressed history and suppressed technologies and suppressed physics and suppressed knowledge and suppressed everything, which is the deadly secret. They're your family, but they're not my family. Of okay. course they're your family. My family doesn't, doesn't do human mutilations. I'm not saying not those are the folks. Craft. I'm not okay. saying those are the folks doing it. But we, you're, but you're talking their family. That's not, no, family. no, no, I'm no, talking no. About many Stop misinterpreting my words. No, I'm not. I'm not misinterpreting. I'm, I'm saying the human component is the reason for every part of the cover-up because we are not ever supposed to know we're much bigger, longer, more amazing, and more diverse than we've been allowed in the last 6,000 years to imagine. That's my model. We will find out someday if it's accurate. Yeah. Well, when I was a kid, there were Lindbergh models, Ravel models, Aurora models. It's just a model. You're entitled to yours. I'm entitled to mine. May I go through my items quickly? Barbara, hang on. Uh, did, 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 were you finished? Barbara? <laughs> I'm never finished. You know that. I know that. But <clears throat> no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm listening now. I'll chime in Excellent. if I have a comment. Excellent. Okay, Go ahead, Robert. Speaking. Go ahead. Okay. There's a conference tomorrow for the 106th birthday of President Kennedy. You, um, uh, the link is there, jfkbirthdaycon.com, conference.com. Item number three, the MJ-12 uh, the Angleton has MJ-12 executive memo, so you can read it for yourself. That's the one he wrote. I consider it his death sentence when he wrote that on November 12th, 10 days before he was assassinated. We were talking about the stranger at the Pentagon, the alien uh, contact with uh, the Department of Defense, and the interview number four, it's a short interview with Dr. Frank Stranges. Who talks who about this guy for? Yeah, yeah, that's the humanoid. Uh, alien entities that made contact with the U.S. government. Number five is a very interesting video. It's called Five Horrifying UFO Encounters Reported by Soldiers. And it it reports on the dangers that are to be encountered when coming into close proximity with UFOs. They are 
may not be hostile, but they are dangerous. However, there is one story there, and I read the original CIA report, which I got from the Blue Book files, and it tells a story of some Russian soldiers who saw a UFO and opened fire on the UFOs, a singular, the UFO. They blasted it. And in return, the UFO blasted them with a, a ray that turned them into stone. Five of them were huddled together uh, near the armaments. One was standing apart, and the one who was standing apart survived. And so I, w- I recommend. It's dangerous. Now, another thing about Dr. Nolan, pathologist, studying the brains of individuals who have come in contact with uh, UFOs, what he didn't reveal was that the findings that some of these people who have come into close proximity of UFOs, landed or flying, but in close proximity, developed brain tumors within three to six months afterwards. Mm. Item number five, excuse me, item number six is a memo from President Roosevelt dealing with how to, um, how to pursue the development of scientific and uh, technological discoveries of air, air, extraterrestrial technology. Uh, item number seven is a dramatization of President Johnson being told the truth by Valiant Thor. This is a very eight. human ET, and there's a photograph of him ostensibly at the Pentagon that Strangest yes. talks about. Yeah. So he supposedly met with President Eisenhower and with uh, Richard Nixon. Uh, going back to the treaty, according to the MJ-12 documents that I've read, there were two negotiations with an alien race, singular. And in Holloman Air Force Base, the 1953 meeting that purportedly happened at Holloman Air Force Base, Eisenhower was asked to get rid of all nuclear weapons in order to make the treaty. He refused to do so. More negotiations were conducted, and in 1954, uh, July 14th of 1954, a treaty was signed not at Holloman Air Force Base, but at Kirkland Air Force Base in Texas. No, Kirkland is right here in New Mexico. It's right south of me. I thought it was in Texas. Nope, nope. We're neighbors. (laughs) Okay, I'll have to check. Um, Memorial Day, spectacular planetary alignment, a rare cosmic event will light up the sky on Memorial Day. Jupiter, Mercury, Venus, Uranus, and Mars perfectly aligning at the same time, along with the moon and a star cluster known as M35. Now I'd like to go back. I'm going to go back right now to the Army Counterintelligence Group documents that I got from the Black Vault and John Greenwald. I was reading how Counterintelligence Group of the U.S. Army was tracking down Nazis and Gestapo officers, and they were trying to catch the... Uh, science and rocketry experts, Werner von Braun being one of them, the Horton brothers, <clears throat> the Horton brothers who developed the flying wing, they were on the wanted list. So Army CIG ferreted out all across Germany trying to find the Horton brothers and the people who were working on the Nazi uh, secret projects, the Haunabu, the Vril, those are the flying saucers, die Glocke, which was the bell, and die Glocke, it was not a flying saucer. It was a time machine. Mm. So they ferreted out 
looking for these guys, and I read in there that there was a, a singular <clears throat> counterintelligence officer named Marvin Kissinger. This I'm talking about now 12, 13, 14 years ago, and I looked at that name, Sergeant Marvin Kissinger. Wow. Could it be? Could it be? <laughs> so a couple of days ago, uh, we were talking, and uh, Ron Gibran and I were talking, and we talked about Kissinger. And he said to me, is he still alive? He said, yeah, he's still alive. He must be 99 or something. I said, I'll, I'll check him out. And so while I'm talking to Ron on the phone, I did this search, and lo and behold, the U.S. Army career in World War II of Heinz Kissinger, born May 27, 1923. He was a 100 years old yesterday. And it turns out that like many Jews had to flee Germany. He came to the United States in 1942. He became a naturalized citizen uh, at the age of 20. He joined the U.S. Army and he was exceptionally gifted in the German language. And as a result, he was put in charge of towns that were captured However, he was transferred to the central, excuse me, the um, counterintelligence group that was out trying to catch Nazis. And so... Of the OSS, you mean? No. CIG was different than OSS. Okay. CIG, Army, OSS was what we would would call an equivalent uh, department, but OSS was separate from the Army or the Navy. It was its own entity. So, but so wait a minute, wait a minute. Is our Kissinger the mysterious Marvin? I, that's why I said, uh, happy birthday, Heinz, or is it Marvin? Yeah, I think well, he's Heinz like Henry, you know, that's, that's a good Henry, one. Heinz. Well, you know, Heinz is not a cool name to have in World War II. No. In the U.S. No. Army. So, and Henry sounds a little meek. So I think Marvin Kissinger is this guy. And so he went from the counterintelligence special agent a position as a sergeant. Then he went into the CIA. He wound up uh, reassigned to teach at the European Command Intelligence School at Camp King. And as civilian employee following his separation from the Army, continued to serve in this role. Now, let's get back to central intelligence and to Reinhard Galen. I ask again, why is NASA called NASA and not the United States Space Agency? And why is the Central Intelligence Agency called Central Intelligence and not the United States Space Agency? Well, in 1943, Albert Speer got together with Hitler and Himmler, and they were having a very bad time, and they had to reconstruct the internal structure of the Third Reich. And what they did was they amalgamated the rocketry, the science and technology division with their espionage and security services, and they called it the Middlework, M-I-T-T-E-L-W-E-R-K, Middlework, Middle Works, Central Works. So when Galen and the other paperclip Nazis refused to work for the United States, they couldn't work for the United States Intelligence Agency. So they named it Central Intelligence. They couldn't work for the United States Space Agency, so they named it NASA. And the first time I heard that, that sound, 
I was watching television the day it was formed, like 1959 or 58, and I said, NASA? That sounds awfully like Nazi to me. Hmm. So the Fourth Reich infiltrated our government, and through the process over the years, that mentality, that philosophy, that attitude has permeated the government. And it came to a head when John F. Kennedy wanted to destroy the Central Intelligence Agency. He actually issued paperwork to dismantle it. He said in October, I'm going to break the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the four winds. And that's when the open war began between President Kennedy and the Central Intelligence You know, it's kind of hard, Robert, listening to all this to pick which theory is the most accurate, but it kind of reminds me of that wonderful uh, murder on the Orient Express where yes. ultimately they all did it. They all did it. Well, let me go a little farther. President Kennedy made a deal with Khrushchev not to invade Cuba, to cease and desist in trying to assassinate Castro. However, a rogue element of the CIA continued with Operation 40 and um, arming anti-Castro Cubans and attacking Cuba into 1963. They burnt the Hesso uh, uh, refinery in Cuba. They were killing cops, uh, officials, burning sugar fields. And these operations were being run off oil drilling platforms north of Cuba that were owned by Zapata Oil. In the Gulf of Mexico. No, some of them were north uh, on the outside of the Gulf of Mexico. But that, the location doesn't matter. And the, the head of that operation was George Bush. Kennedy was livid because those attacks were painting him as a liar in the eyes of Khrushchev and the Soviets. Yep. So he, he assigned the FBI to track down these rogue agents of the CIA that were conducting their own operations against his orders. And first and foremost among them was George H.W. Bush. So he was on the run. Lyndon Johnson was about to be impeached on November 22nd, 1963, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. There was going to be a hearing in the Senate, a vote on whether or not to impeach Lyndon Johnson. So all of them had reasons to see Kennedy dead before 1 o'clock in the afternoon when he would give a speech at the trademark. And what was he going to say at the speech? He was going to say, we're going to go to the moon with the Russians in a joint venture. We are going to exchange science and technology with the Russian Academy of Sciences. Everything that he'd written on November 12th, he was ready to spring on November 22nd. And the whole history of the world would have been different if President Kennedy had been It elected. sure would have. Yes. See, I, I still think that the moon transfer on Kennedy's part was crucial because everything else is kind of up in the air in theory. The moon was a solid, real place. We were going. If they went with us, we would share jointly the discovery of the libraries. I mean, you can't look at CIA imagery of alien ruins on the moon and not go, holy cow, we can touch something which stands still which is separate, which is, which is credible, which will be analyzable in its own right, not dependent on whichever ET happens to whisper in your ear 
about some ancient historical thing or something they're planning to do, documentation of what's under the moon, the libraries, the archives, will change human history forever once we go back. Yes, there's another very important element here. The revelation of UFO existence, alien uh, reality, would destabilize science. The, the cornerstones... Well, that brings us back to science. Brookings. Remember, evolutionary theory. Hang on, hang evolutionary on. Theory hang on. Doc, documentation. Remember what, what the Brookings report said. The most fragile group in terms of extraterrestrial interaction and contact, they pegged as the scientific community. Exactly. So you're 100% right. Do you remember the phrase? It said... They might be so disheartened, they might not be able to get out of bed. To exactly, go to work. yes. <laughs> right. Like if somebody so else discovers something on the other side of the galaxy, somebody here would, would not want to pursue science because everything had been discovered. Frankly, I think or, that's an incredible overstatement. But uh, Right. Well, here it is. The existence of alien uh, life or unlife. There are some that are animate and not alive, and they're kind of really weird and creepy. Well, why couldn't a super civilization produce a data? I mean, right now we're having this huge argument on AI. By the way, if anybody has any recommendations for who I should talk to on AI, please let me know. But if you can imagine the current AI in a mobile form, i.e. like Isaac Asimov and his iRobots and androids and data, then obviously an artificial life form that could exist in this bizarre physics. Remember, the solar system physics has been broken. To come here as an ET is an incredible impediment because the very physics is against the life process of those particular folks. That has to always be kept in mind. Well, another thing is the, the aliens are cautious and they point, uh, well, first of all, some of them. can't forget Orson Welles. We cannot forget the War of the Worlds. No, Academy. of course and not. And that was paramount in the heads of Truman and uh, Vandenberg. Well, and, do you know that I think that whole thing was a test? And do you, know, do you, right? you know why? I have data. Do you yeah. know where Orson Welles broadcast his Mercury Theater radio show that paralyzed the nation that night from New York, New York, the North woods building. Ah, how interesting. Who are the North woods now? Why, why should we think about North woods as a name now? Because of operation North woods and the plan to create false flag attacks in Miami to blame on Castro. Is that it? And shoot down John Glenn among other things. Exactly. Right. So I found fly an airplane yep, 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 uh, yep. loaded with American students and destroy it and blame it on Castro. That was, that was Lyman Lemnitzer, yep. the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of but Staff. But it was called Operation Northwood, so I found yes, a Northwood connection to Orson Welles. I, I think Orson Welles was bought off. He basically, his payment apparent was his incredible rapid rise to the top in Hollywood and the creation of Citizen Kane and some of his other masterpieces at a time when he should never have risen that far that fast unless it was a payoff. Yeah. I'd like to uh, pay my respects 
to Doc, uh, Major Donald Kehoe. I mentioned him before. He yep. was the, one of the heads of NICAP. And I've sent uh, another item to Keith that he's going to post. But right now, I just want to read this statement. It's a short statement that he made after the Flying Saucers uh, over For the current generation, tell everybody who like, Donald Kehoe was, because he was a pivotal factor in the 1950s UFO scene. Major Donald Kehoe was a U.S. Marine Corps pilot in World War II of exceptional skill and valor. And he was right on top of the, the UFO uh, issue and the importance of getting to the bottom of it. And also, Marines were part of the Navy. And as yep. I said, the Navy has tried to tell the people the truth. And it's always been an internecine war between the U.S. Navy and U.S. Army Air Force, which was split <laughs> off into two. But the mentality of U.S. Army Air Force is compartmentalize everything, deny everything. And the Navy said, you know, we go by the U.S. Constitution. But Major Donald Kehoe made a statement, and I'm not going to read the, the whole thing, but uh, several paragraphs. If Russia had such a weapon, meaning, surely would. Meaning, meaning UFOs, right? Yes. Uh, if Russia had such a weapon, they surely would have delivered it or delivered an ultimatum in the five years since the first report of flying saucers, because such a weapon would mean complete control over any nation. Now, this is highlighted. The real reason for the order to shoot down the saucers is to capture one of these objects as fast as possible before national hysteria results. I think officials are badly worried about the effects. If they could, if they could capture one of these and get the answer and reveal it to the public, regardless of what the answer is, it would end the mystery. Outer space device. My opinion is that if they capture one, they will find it is a device from outer space. We worked out a rough cycle with the aid of the Canadian officials, a Canadian official who I am not at liberty to name. That was Wilbert Smith. That's Wilbert Smith, exactly. That indicated this sudden increase in sightings. And I'd like to say, I gave a lecture on UFOs at the um, Edgar Casey Center here in New York back in 2016. And this lady, and I mentioned Wilbert Smith, and I read his uh, document. And this lady comes up to me and she says, hi, thank you for your lecture. I'm Wilbert Smith's daughter. Oh, my God. <laughs> it, was, it was a wonderful Are experience. you still in touch with her? No, I am oh. not. Uh, it's been how many years? Oh, that's terrible. Well, yeah, if she's listening to the show. Could you track her down? I can try through the Edgar Cayce Yeah, let's Center. try because Smith was in charge of a secret group in Canada that was trying to back in here, back engineer the engineering of UFOs and, yes. the, and the interaction between magnetic fields, gravitational mm-hmm. fields, et cetera, et cetera. So his yeah. daughter might be a hell of a, a, a conversationalist on the, yes, on the it subject. Would, it would be. Yes, he said he was the one who made the statement that flying saucers were classified higher than the hydrogen bomb yep. in the United yep. States. And the Canadians, you know, they they were they were really a big part of this. You know, like they're the uh, the unsung heroes of of the research. 
And America, meaning the United States, was, um, well, abducting at Canadian brains, you know, snatching them up and bringing them to the stateside to work over here. Uh, several Canadian, very highly gifted students just disappeared uh, from Canada, never to be seen again by their families. And uh, sad thing, they were, you know, that's what happens when you get sheep dipped, as happened to James Files. James Files was with the 82nd Airborne Division, and he was taken from there into the CIA and sent to Laos, as I mentioned before. So uh, I think that we've done the nation a great service today by giving them the true history of the reasons for the National Security Act of 1947 and 48. And since keeping the big secret was the reason for that, and we've revealed it, I don't think we need it anymore. I think we have to take back constitutional government, and I think that's what the Congress and Senate are asserting. They are clawing back or snatching back the authority that was hijacked, arrogated is the proper word. Well, that's the process that I wanted Stephen to lay out. Uh, We only got about three minutes left, actually two. Stephen, any last words? Okay, Stephen's either not hearing us, he can't find his unmute button, or he left everything that he wanted. I found the unmute button. There you are. There you are. That's great. Uh, Let me just leave you with these last words. Uh, Well, just to comment on something that came up. The thing that I most intriguingly connect to Kennedy is that it was a few years after the when the events started taking place were craft or hovering over our nuclear weapon sites and turning the missiles off. Yep. Now, that's a pretty strong message, and the timing is intriguing. <laughs> I don't know about early treaties. I just don't have the information to go there. But from 63, we almost had a nuclear war. It was as obvious as it could be. Then weapons start being turned off. A number of years go by maybe about to end this embargo. And I have said and will be saying repeatedly over the coming months and weeks that at the heart of this is politics. And by that, I mean negotiation. Okay, guys. Nukes have got to go. We have run out of time. we find that out. We have run out of time. We will continue this. My guest this morning is Stephen Bassett, Robert Morningstar, with a cameo by Barbara Honiger. I want to thank Barbara. Until next Saturday and Sunday, same time, same bad channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.